Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. All right. Well, this is a real treat. It's a treat for me. Hopefully, it's a treat for you as well. Joined in studio for the hour by one of my favorite radio and television personalities, someone who I've been following for literally decades. And for the last couple of decades, I've uh, had the opportunity to uh, call a friend as well. I am uh, very, very pleased to be joined by veteran TV and radio talk show host and the host of the new Richard Bay Talk podcast, the appropriately named Richard Bay. Richard, it's great to see you. It's been way too long. Thank you for that intro. And, uh, but I do have a story to tell oh, during boy. this visit to New York that was an example of uh, hubris <laughs> after, after that big buildup. All right, so uh, someone I love was in the hospital, and I went to visit them. And, they, and uh, afterwards, I walked through Times Square. I was going to see a Broadway show. And, you know, you have those guys handing out the CDs. Sure. And as soon as you get it in your hand, they go, hey, that's $20, right? So I'm going through Times Square, and this guy goes, Richard Bay? And I said, yeah. He goes, you're the Richard Bay? And I said, yeah, I'm the Richard Bay. You're the big Richard Bay? I'm the big Richard Bay. Where do they find these people? And then I kept walking and I went, oh, my God, somebody still remembers me. And I have my mask on and I had glasses and I'm 30 years older. How did he ever recognize me? And yet he still has me in his memory bank. And then I looked down. And I had my hospital visitor pass attached to my shirt, and it says Richard Bay. Uh, that's terrific. I know a lot of our listeners uh, still remember you from your time here on the radio on WABC. And if people want to call in, if they have questions, if they have comments, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Can I just say something? I was I was talking to Jay Diamond actually, who was another ABC veteran, and uh, before I came here, and I was telling him. I go back so far that there was a period of time when WABC was on 6th Avenue. And I filled in for Bob Grant, and I interviewed Alan Simpson for an hour mm. on the radio station. But it was on 6th Avenue. Yeah. Now, it, I think they moved to Two Penn Plaza, which is where I worked previously and you did, around 88 or 89. Yeah. Does that sound about right? And then uh, we moved into this building in the summer of 2020. I don't know, because 6th Avenue must have been like 87 or, or 88. Yeah, I think it was around 89 yeah. that they moved to 2 Penn. But um, you used to live in New York for many, many years. You moved to Florida a few years ago. How's New York different now, New York City different as a visitor as opposed to when you lived here? Any noticeable well, it, differences? It, you know, you depend on the period of time. This city, one of the things you can count on as as – you can count on it as well. When you get older, you change. But this city keeps changing and evolving. And I lived here 
um, you know, during the Dinkins era and, uh, you know, during the um, late 80s and in the 70s when people were com- – the city was a mess. We had the squeegee men. We had the the, the tourist from Utah who got a steak knife plunged mm. in his chest on 6th Avenue in the subway trying to protect his parents. A cop was – outside of where I lived, a cop was shot trying to stop a robbery at an ATM uh, you had graffiti everywhere. So I lived through that period of time, too. But one thing I will say is this city is so freaking expensive. It's it's just the other day I was reading an article. One article said the median rent in Manhattan is forty one hundred dollars. And that another article said it's five thousand dollars. That's the median rent. That's incredible. Now, Absolutely incredible. In Florida. There came a point in time when I said I wanted to move back to New York, and I took two weeks, and I came up here looking for an apartment to rent, and this was right after COVID. And I went around, and almost every place had something called the 40 times rule. So you had to have 40 times the monthly rent in yearly salary in order to sign a lease. And if you got a co-signer, they would have to have 80 times. So I gave them my tax returns, and they said, yeah, well, you don't qualify. And I'd say, yeah, but last year was COVID. (laughs) People weren't working, you know. I said, if you go back two years, I made a little bit more money. I worked in the theater. Now you wouldn't – you don't qualify 40 times. You know what that means? That if you're looking for a $3,000 apartment, which is, you know – Inexpensive. But not – yeah, you can't find one. Right. But $3,000, you'd have to make hundred and twenty grand a year. Mm -hmm. Just to qualify yeah, it's for it. absolutely extraordinary. I mean, uh, that, I guess, is the whole rationale behind rent stabilization is to uh, provide a dose of affordability. But uh, those apartments are few and far between, as you know. Yeah, but I saw I saw some statistics the other day about uh, they had about uh, 15 different New York City, uh, uh, American cities, and each one had the number of new apartments or condos being built. And New York, even though you see cranes around town and everything, it's it's really very low. They're really not building a lot in New York. They were building a lot of, of course, in the Sun Belt where people were going. You know, uh, when you were on uh, WABC, one of the things that uh, I really enjoyed about your show, and uh, I've tried to emulate this on this program to some extent, I noticed is that uh, <laughs> is that you really it was such a tremendous variety of subject matter on any given program. I mean, you would put it was clear to me how much work you were putting into this right. show. You would have uh, really fun bits like Bay the Barbarian, where you'd satirize <laughs> the kind of monstrous right wing talk show host. You would do the film reviews with your dad, Dick, Dick and, and Dad, dad go, go to the, the movies. movies yeah. You'd have great song parodies, great pl- you'd do interviews, you'd mix it up with the callers. There are really so few shows, forget about our station, on talk radio in general that where you see the people involved putting in that amount of work. What do you think happened to talk radio that you don't see that level of I don't know, layering and construction and multifaceted programming that you did no, when you did your program. No, it's not entertainment. It's political indoctrination, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, So when did that change? Well, I don't want to mention any names, but I think some of it changed with, with a PD who thought about P, what were they calling them, P1 topics? Right. That So there were three topics that would get uh, listeners angry and excited 
and you'd know what they were, and those are the three topics you'd have to hammer over and over and over again. And that's why you listen to radio all day, and it's basically the same thing over and over and over again. And it's, 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 it's not even that it's not a different point of view. It's the same subject. Right. It's the same right. topic, right. you know. And my feeling was with radio, it's, it's an intimate um, uh, medium. You know, you're in your car. You're lying, you know, in bed at night listening to a show like this because I did overnights too. Mm-hmm. I, I was telling somebody today I worked six days a week at uh, WAVC, you know. In fact, one day I did the – one weekend I did the Sunday overnight from 12 to 5 or 6 and then uh, Kubi was out. So I had to fill in for Kubi and, I, and that was last minute. And then John Gambling, I was set to fill in for Gambling because he was on vacation. So I did 12 midnight to 12 noon, went home, tried to take a nap. Of course, I couldn't do that. And then came back and did the right. buzz with Steve Malsberg at 6 o'clock, which those are Curtis radio oh, hours. my goodness. I mean, right? that, uh, that, that is for sure. Uh, 800-848-9222. It is a shame that you don't see, and I give uh, WABC under the current ownership, a great deal of credit for at least being willing to try some new things and go in a different direction and not have the same sort of cookie-cutter approach to radio that you see on every other talk station in the whole country. But it it is a shame that a lot of people view podcasting is the place where you have to go to find creative spoken word content because people still want to hear entertaining and informative spoken word uh, dialogue, but it's really, you can't find it on the radio dial by and, and large. And what you really miss with podcasting, though, is that intimacy. Right. When, you're, when you're doing, especially if you're local and you're doing a radio uh, broadcast, you're dealing with people who live in that area. You're talking about things that concern their lives. And you're talking to them, hopefully, in a way. I always there's there's several, uh, you know, uh, television hosts that had influenced me over the years. Uh, But uh, and one of them was Soupy Sales, obviously, with the TV Mm -hmm. show. But uh, the, the the people who would be intimate and talk with you on the radio make you feel like you were talking just right to them, you know. There was an intimacy that you could create with people. But the other one was the Mickey Mouse Club. When we grew up, we'd sit in front of that TV and watch Mickey Mouse or or Wonderama with Sonny Fox in New York. And you'd feel like you were part of the show. Mm. When he, at the end, when he goes, M-I-C, see you next time, K-E-Y, you were in that club. You were in that group. And that's something that you've done successfully with your uh, Facebook Page Murano haters and lovers and whatever, and there's a group of people. I know who those people are. You know, I know who Metzger is and Geller is and Stephen Johnson. Even if I don't know who he is, he doesn't have a picture yeah, or a right, bio. Sure, but I know those people and I know what they're like. And it, and you also get the callers too. That you you know who the callers are who who, uh, you know, would call in from time to time on radio. So we spoke, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago when you first launched your podcast, the Richard Bay Talk podcast. I, I love it. I watch it every week. And um, whenever uh, you um, whenever you and I are on the same side of an issue, I'm always envious that you can make a point far better than 
I can, uh, even if we end up agreeing. And then uh, you're often able to persuade me that I'm wrong because you're pretty persuasive. And then uh, I end up feeling guilty if I end up disagreeing with you by the end of the podcast. But the thing I really like about it is you blend commentary on news of the day with a lot of really classic clips from your broadcasting career right. stuff from people are talking the old richard bay show what made you launch this podcast what what prompted you to do it boredom no actually it was uh there's a when i worked on i worked on sirius xm for a while uh primarily filling in for lynn samuels who was on abc and for a guy named alex bennett who was actually a radio legend, you know, when I was, you know, in college or in high school. You don't know him. Alex no, I know him. Yeah, yeah he's been yeah. a guest on the show. We right. were talking this week, actually. Uh, I tried to get him to come on this week, but the, the hour was too late for him. <laughs> well, he's, yeah. you know, he's even older than I sure. am. <laughs> and, and this was a stretch for me. I think <laughs> I think I left my alacrity on the other side of midnight. Um so, uh, so what was my point here? No, I was that, why you Oh, oh right. So my yeah. producer there who would he'd he'd when I when I'd come into work, I'd have a stack of paper like this cuz one thing I learned working on ABC is that if I was wrong about something, oh, if I had it. misstated a fact, there was a viewer who was rushing to the phone to correct me. And I wanted to be able to attribute whatever I was saying to, you know, a credible, although these days, what does that mean, credible news source, Mm. or a quote, or to specifically say, um, you know, what had happened. And so I had a stack of papers with me, and I'd, I'd, you know, have them by topic lined up, and he'd always called me the... uh, the the most over, the most superficially over researched talk show host <laughs> on the on the air and uh, he moved to Florida and so we got together a few times and he kept saying why don't you do a podcast I said everybody and his dog has a podcast I, what am I going to do a podcast for and he said but you know you you know you should do it you have you have interest because we'd sit for hours we have something we call hash Wednesdays. Where on Wednesdays, I love corned beef hash. It's one of my favorite things. Corned beef hash, three poached eggs. Yum, yum, yum. And so we'd find the best places to get corned beef hash in Florida. And we'd get together on Wednesdays and we'd talk politics. We'd talk about life. We'd talk about what we're watching on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And he said, you could do all this on a podcast. So he kept he kept nudging me and nudging me. So finally I said, all right. And uh you know, it's so easy to put it together. It's not easy to put this the show together, sure. but to get the little camera and to yeah, get a no, microphone. I, I, my you only know? Ca- it's a terrific podcast. I do subscribe, and people could search the Richard Bay Talk podcast either on uh, on YouTube or any podcast platform. I only wish you did it more often. Uh, I hate that it's yeah, only uh, once some, a week. Some people tell me. That. I know. I, 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 but I, then I also could... have this this trove of a video. From all the interviews I've done. Uh, So far, I've had Steven Spielberg, Sammy Davis Jr., Jackie Mason, Joan Rivers, Jimmy Carter, uh, clips from, and and clips. And as I looked at some of the old clips that I had, I had them converted to DVDs. It's a lot of the same problems. I had Billy Boggs, who was the homeless person. Mm. Back then, I don't know if you remember of course, her, right? Absolutely, right. And and they tried to take her off the state streets. The ACLU stood up for her. She was a guest on the show. And and when you're talking about uh, oh book burning, I my very first show was was book banning and book burning and how the kids shouldn't be reading these certain books in school. It was it was all the same stuff. 
One of the things about your style as a broadcaster that I'm genuinely in awe of is how you've been able to sort of reinvent yourself in so many different formats. <laughs> now, a lot of people uh, can do TV well. They can't make the transition to radio so well, vice versa. A lot of folks can do serious journalism well. They can't necessarily uh, focus more on the entertainment aspect so well. And yet you're able to do it all seamlessly, and now you're doing the same thing with podcasts. Makes, uh, uh, it drives a lot of us that uh, struggle to make these transitions and absolutely And you left crazy. out acting. Yeah, I, I, just, I played uh, you know, right before COVID. I played in a George Bernard Shaw play in Orlando in Florida, and that was one of the greatest experiences of my later life with a group of actors. And um, we, we, we had a three-month run, and it was an equity professional actor production. And uh, I just loved that. I love being on the stage. A lot of folks may remember you uh, from Channel 9 here in New York, and although I think Channel 9 was uh, sort of a superstation in those right, days, right, so it, right. you had kind of nationwide appeal, where you would do the, the Richard Bay show. Prepare yourself. Excuse me? For a double dose of Bay. Richard Bay. <laughs> now you can catch two times the talk. Do you want revenge? Times the fun. Five days a week. The reason becomes clear. The Richard Bay Show. I'm proud of it. Weekdays at 11 and now afternoons at 4. It's a hot swing of place. So for two times the Bay, two times a day, watch The Richard Bay Show. Now at 11 and 4, beginning Monday on Channel 9. The uh, show was very popular. Uh, you developed Twice whole, a day? Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> the, the, this whole cult following. And uh, the show really was sort of uh, prescient in terms of what came after it. Oh. Oh, my God. It? Yes, it was. Exactly. We opened the door and everybody else ran through. But what they didn't have was I always thought the show as satirical theater. I was playing different characters. Dick Bay, private eye. Confess. The cheating husband. Right. Confess. Slapping them across Mr. the face. Puniverse. Mr. Puniverse. Mr. Yeah. I played uh, Sergeant Dick Bay and his... Uh, his um, Henpecked husbands in revolt against dictator wives. It was it was fun, and every day we we came up with like a different piece of theater for this. The wheel of torture, where we'd put somebody on that wheel and spin them around. It was it was a to, to me a satire on American pop culture, and it wasn't. Listen, you do a TV show five days a week. I would say one third of it was garbage. Uh, one third of it was okay. It was still funny and entertaining. And one third of it is pretty classic. Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Now, another, the way that you did Nine Broadcast Plaza or People Are Talking, very different style than there the There you Richard go. Bay That's show. completely different. Uh, right. And there's really not a show, unless I'm missing something, certainly not a local show like Nine Broadcast Plaza on these days. I mean, what you would do is you would do on, on a local show the news of the day and have the newsmakers on the biggest local stories anywhere. Well, and uh, you don't see that anymore. Well, thank, thanks to my producers and Rosemary Henry, who was the uh, executive producer on that show. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable what they did. They would, uh, you're right. If it was in the New York post on the front page, we had secrete Gable. We had Jessica Hahn. We had uh, the Stein, the mother of the Steinberg baby. Nobody else had these people. And you know they would they would rush over to New York. One guy we were doing a show on Squeegee Men, and one pro novice producer who had just come on, we sent him down to the Holland Tunnel <laughs> to put Squeegee Men in a limousine and bring them to the studio to do it on TV. And you're right, it was 
we were in Sea Caucus, uh, you know, but it did cover this whole area, and uh, it, it it felt homey. It felt like it, it was part of this community. Uh, that reminds me uh, to go back to our uh, my initial question to you. In New York, I feel, has sort of gotten a bad rap, and there's no question that things have, when it comes to crime, when it comes to rats, when it comes to cleanliness, have maybe gone in the wrong directions in a lot of key areas, but I'm consistently amazed when people call me from other parts of the country, even other parts of the world, and say, is it still okay to visit New York? And I'm pointing out, we're going to have 56 million visitors this year. Clearly, there's still something about New York worth visiting. So you don't feel, as a former New Yorker that's now visiting, you don't feel unsafe or like you're walking around in the Wild West, do you? No. And compared to the late 80s, there's no comparison. Uh, But you're right. The cleanliness is a problem. The rats are a problem, you know. And there is there is more crime, but, you know, it's not like you walk down the street and you, you oh, my God, that guy's shot. Oh, my God, look over there. There's a knifing. I mean, these things do happen. The thing is this, is that New York is a media capital. Right. So everything, every time somebody gets shot, stabbed, robbed, the house burns, it, it, it's in the papers. So you feel like you're constantly uh, deluged with catastrophe and murder and when we come back, we'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. We want to get Richard's take on what's happening in the world politically and uh, where, where, we go, where we go from here, not only in the midterm elections, but all the other many, many issues in the news that have a lot of people worked up. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest for the hour, the one and only Richard Bay. If you want to comment, you can do so. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. My friends, either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or you're a pink panty-wearing commie liberal who is supportive of a terrorist regime in the international community. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here I say trouble in the world community. Why, sure, I'm a peace lover, right? Mighty proud to say it, always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the time that I spend talking about peace is golden. Helps me cultivate a sweet nature and a compassionate conservatism and a few votes. Ever try to send a fleet of ships halfway around the earth and keep the tensions going? But just as I say it takes judgment, brains, and maturity to bully the whole damn world, I say that any boob like Clinton can lob a missile into an aspirin factory. And I call that appeasement. The first big step on the road to the depths of Democratic hand-wringing. First, it's a little wine from the liberals. Then it's drinking beer with Saddam. And the next thing you this know, you've got a leader running around in a Muslim song star. parodies that Richard Bay produced and uh, performed when he was here on WABC. And there's a whole collection of songs uh, that you did, Richard, that... Now, when I hear the original version of that song, I only hear your parody. You know, uh, well, you did William Clinton Goodbye, which was, That's you know, right. Toot Toot Tootsie Goodbye. Right, right. When I hear I get the either the Jolson version of that song, I only hear you sing. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, They Just Killed Timothy McVeigh song oh, that right. you did. Uh, oh, the, oh uh, the Jihad, uh, the American Jihad. Uh, oh, Yankee Taliban. I'm a Yankee uh, yeah, Taliban. Exactly. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that you just don't see much of uh, on, on radio <laughs> but that these days. One, I mean, oh, that's my favorite. And you want to know something? I've seen the clips of Hugh Jackman in Music Man, and I'm closer to the key <laughs> than he is. I mean, I love Hugh Jackman. I love him. But, man, he's just not 
when he sings Trouble, it's a real disappointment. Robert Preston was incredible. Have in you seen the, uh, the, the, no, the new show? No? I, I'm, I'm, it's a I, fortune, I, right? Take right it to a I fortune. have a limit as to what. I love theater, but I have a limit as to what I would pay. $125 is it. So what have you seen this week since you've been in I town? just saw A Strange Loop, and it was a strange loop. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to get into that. Uh, recommending? Not recommending? I think I, it depends on your tolerance. For certain things, yeah, fair enough. But I, I, I'm glad I saw it, and I was trepidatious about buying a ticket because when I read the reviews, although every one of them was a rave and it won the Tony Award and a Pulitzer Prize, when I read the reviews, I said I am not going to be interested in a fat, ugly, gay, self-hating homos- uh, 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 a theater usher. You know, and that's what the show's about. And it's about him writing a play. Uh, the show is about a, a, uh, you know a fat, ugly, homosexual, self-loathing playwright who's writing a play. Sort of a play within a play. A kind play of within a play. You know, I was listening to one of the podcasts that you did, and I think I've heard you tell the story before, either to me privately or in one of the discussions that we've had over the years. And you were talking about how when you were co-hosting the morning show with Mark Riley, who's a terrific broadcaster on WWRL, still a great guy. Mark and I uh, keep in touch. Great guy. And you talked about how this was you were probably the only white guy on the station. And yet you were for Obama. And just as you when you were on WABC, you were the lone liberal and you'd have to battle everybody that was for George Bush. You would have to go wall to wall battling all the black callers who were against Obama and for Hillary. I know. I thought that um, that Mark Riley's explanation to you of why. A lot of these black callers weren't for the the old black candidate in the race. Was interesting. What did he say? Mark Riley, and he said, "I will," because t- I asked him this, and even Rennie Bishop, who was the PD, he he was for Hillary Clinton, and we had a, a bet that you know if if Obama won, uh, he would buy me a Starbucks, and vice versa, and I would buy him a Starbucks. And every day we we talk about this, the you know the PD of the station. But Mark said, I'll say this during the commercial break, but don't get, don't think I'm going to say this on the air. He said, um, the black listeners, if they believed Obama could win, they'd have to reassess everything they thought about this country, racism, and about the opportunity for black people to actually get ahead with the help of white people. He said, they just it's hard for them to grasp upon that concept when all their lives and through their experiences, they have learned something completely different. So they will not support Obama because it's, 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 it's negating, you know, what they believe about themselves and the world. Now, it, it does seem that since 2008, Racial tensions are worse in America than they were at that time. Maybe that's just my perspective. But through the prism of hindsight, do you think Mark Riley was right or wrong about that comment? Yeah, no, I think he was right. But I think, but I, I think even though Obama was, not only did he beat Hillary Clinton, but he was elected president twice. Uh, it still didn't negate that concept for people. That mm. I mean. And we're we're going and believe me, I, in some ways it's it's personally, it's like when I go to Broadway, almost every play I see is a black 
experience play like this, like this one. When I, I looked, you know, as an actor, I'm trying to, you know, look for roles in theater. And I, because I'm in equity, I get the casting breakdowns. Every play in every regional theater is an entirely African-American cast. Um, so, and I, and some days you pick up the New York Times. One day I picked up the magazine section and every model was black. You go to the arts and leisure section. It's getting, it was it hasn't been like this lately, but there was a period of time when almost a, the sculptor was black. The art, the article about the actress was black. The article about this one. And I realize that we're making up for periods of time when, when black artists were neglected. And when you think of all the talent and genius that is available in the black community in this country, not only in, in, in the theater or film. I mean, could you imagine? Remember, we used to, when I grew up, we had one black actor, Sidney Poitier, right. and he had to play everything. Once in a while, Harry Belafonte would walk in. I know, but if you could, but think of all the tremendous talents we have now, uh, you know, that came from black Americans. It's unbelievable. Just think of all the things we ignored over those years and the things we lost as a culture because we ignored them. But now, of course, we've got an avalanche. Well, that was before James Patterson took back his comments. That's what I think he was making sort of a similar point about the literary community is that it's it's tougher for white male authors these these days. days. And uh, I think that's what when people complain about wokeism or things like that, I think I think it's a reaction to uh, to a lot of that. But I think it will eventually level, you know, level off and talent will out. I I certainly hope so. Speaking of Obama, obviously, his vice president was uh, was Joe Biden. Biden and Trump are... Are we going to have time for phone calls? Yeah, we will. We will. Give me one second. Uh, Biden and Trump are in a very interesting position in that, uh, by all accounts, both of them are probably the favorite to win their party's nomination. And yet polling suggests that the majority of Democrats would prefer someone other than Biden. The majority of Republicans would prefer someone other than Trump. Now, you're a Democrat, but very independent Democrat. You voted for Bob Dole, Ross Perot, It's time for Biden to hang it up. And, and I do believe, as as in that Maureen Dowd column, she said, this would be a great time for you to say, I'm not going to run again because I've accomplished so much. Uh, in one of my podcasts, I had a speech uh, by FDR after his, he's starting his second term. And he said, we rolled up our sleeves and we accomplished things. And uh, there are people who hate me and I welcome their enmity. But in my second term, we will not only have their hatred; we will become their masters. <laughs> <laughs> so you would, you're you're in the someone other. Oh, than Biden it's time camp. for somebody new. Biden was a a good transition, and he accomplished a lot at the last minute. I mean, our media is so f- crazy. I mean, a month ago, if you pay, if you go back and read. The newspapers from a month ago, Biden is finished. He can't accomplish anything. He's falling down. He's, you know, then all of a sudden we kill uh, Zawahiri. Zawahiri, We pass this, uh, the biggest climate bill ever. We lower uh, or we negotiate some drug prices at least. Uh, We we get the the veterans bill for the the, smoke pits, the the fire pits, pits, the smoke pits. I mean, I'm sure I'm leaving something out, but it was like. 
There was like everything. There was nothing, and then somebody opened a big gate, and all this cornucopia well, fell out of it. Well, if and if you're going to give him the blame for the high gas prices, now they're lower. Now that they're going yeah. the other way, you got to give him some of the credit there as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Who's your candidate for twenty twenty four? If you had to pick, well, <clears throat> to win or to dream? Well, both. To win, probably Sharon Brown. Uh, from Ohio. Ohio. He's won the senatorship in Ohio three times in what has basically been a red state. Including in years that Trump won yes. Ohio, right? So there is a, a, a Trump-Brown voter. And he has got great working man creds and union creds, and he's a bright guy. The only problem is he talks like this. My name is Sharon Brown, and I, you know, and to listen to that voice, I, I, I. So, All right, so he's the one to win. Okay, but if I had my dream, and this, this is going to drive your listeners crazy, I think take the two most intelligent, focused people in politics, and I don't care, one could be president, one could be vice president, Pete Buttigieg and Stacey Abrams, a black and a gay man. A black woman and a gay man. But that's a dream. You, I have a dream. <laughs> you think Stacey Abrams pulls out the uh, gubernatorial election in Georgia? Well, uh, I, I hope she does, but I don't know. Uh, probably not. Uh, any prediction on Liz Cheney or Sarah Palin tomorrow? Well, or today? Liz actually. Cheney's going to lose. And Sarah Palin might win. I, what I thought was interesting today was how the uh, Senate Republican Committee has pulled back advertising for the, some candidates in three states, they're pulling back on Dr. Oz, mm-hmm. where Fetterman is like 10 points ahead. They're pulling back on Blake Masters, who was the new golden boy, Peter Thiel's billion-dollar baby. Um, and uh, and Kelly is way ahead of him in Arizona. Arizona right. I forget. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, a, a, let, me, let me get to some folks that are queuing up to talk with you. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me begin with Carol in New Jersey. Carol, you're on with Richard Bay. Hey. Hey, this is Carol. Who's, and you're Hi. the Carol that's on Murano Haters and Lovers, right? No. Oh, oh okay. Oh, oh, okay. Not at all. okay. I love I love him. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it, Carol. <laughs> what did you want to say to Richard? I love him too. <laughs> Richard, I know you're half Irish. Yes. And your mother met uh, Errol Flynn. That's correct. <laughs> I remember that story. Yeah, well, what happened? story. My mother was and going up he... a spiral staircase in Greenwich Village. And a guy pinched her on the butt and slapped her and said, move your ass, honey. And she turned around. She was mad. And it was Errol Flynn. You're kidding. (laughs) And she bragged about it for the rest of her life. Your mother was groped by uh, Errol Flynn. (laughs) That's right. And cursed at. Well, sort of. That's funny. 800-848-9222. John is in New Jersey. John, you're on with Richard Beck. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey. Um, I I heard... uh... Corn beef hash earlier. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I don't know uh, if you guys, uh, it, well, there's one place in New Jersey, one place in New York. Uh, in Jersey, where I'm from, have you guys ever been to Harold's of New York? Harold's in Woodbridge. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I've been there, yeah. No. no. Uh, but yeah. I've been to the Rio Diner many times. They have some of the best corned beef hash at uh, Harold's. Harold's? Oh, man. Uh, you, you, know, the, you, the... Order, you order a sandwich. 
for one person, and they come out with a pile for, like, it'll feed, like, ten people. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's sort of the Jewish Carmines, right? You you, yeah. you have to go there with four <laughs> or five people. You can't right. go there just to have a sandwich for one person. Right. I don't like – I don't love that, honestly. You know, I, I like, you know, be able to order a meal, and you can have it right. if you want to split half it. But the, uh, what was but your he, New York recommendation, John? Yeah. Um, Park East Kosher. Park East Kosher. I'm not familiar Where with that. Where is that? One. Yeah. They're uh, uptown um, on uh, First Ave and like 90th, somewhere around there. All right. Well, well I'll look it there up. You on go. There's Thank something you, called Google that is magic. <laughs> Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Romy is in Manhattan. Hello, Romy. Good morning. Richard, I was a big fan of yours. Nice to hear you again. Oh, um, you. I'd like to know, how was it working um, in Bruno? I thought that segment was a hoot. Yeah, that was. Will be Bruno with with Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah, I know, right? I, I well, first of all, I had no idea. I I told all my friends, listen, I'm doing this thing with Sasha Baron Cohen, but I'm just the facilitator. I'll hardly be in it. Maybe you'll hear my voice off camera. And then when I actually saw it, and they put me in the trailer, and it had my name up there, I thought, oh my god, I did this for scale. <laughs> what am I crazy? Um. We did three different versions of it, uh, one with a, a pretty much generic audience and one with a, a, a sort of a, a, um, a, a gun group uh, evangelical audience and then one with a black audience. And, of course, the one with the black audience was the one that made it. But he was – he's probably – I only met him after we shot the uh, – but we spent the whole day because we did it three different times, right? So – but I met him afterwards – and he was so tightly wound up. Really? I can't tell you what he's like. He was like... <sighs> was know. that his decision to put you in the film, or was that somebody else's? No, they, uh... what they called me up originally, and they said, uh, they said we'd like to bring back the Richard Bay show. We think that it could play well in Europe. Would you be interested in doing it again? Now, I'm really not all that interested in doing it again, but I'm not doing anything, right, sure. so why not? So I said, sure. So they said, well, we have to send you an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. So they sent me that, and I signed it, and I send it back. And they said, all right, now we can tell you the truth. <laughs> we don't want to do the Richard Bay show. Have you ever heard of Sasha Baron Cohen? And I said, are you kidding me? I've seen every Ali G. I saw the, the British Ali Gs. So basically that's how I got into it. The producers uh, – Hired me as a uh, you know a talk show host. They thought that would be good doing. Yeah, this. the film is Bruno. If people haven't seen it, I actually haven't seen it. I've seen your portion of oh, the film, but I actually haven't hell. seen the film. It's got got great reviews. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Oh, hi, Frank. Hey, Richard Bay. You're sort of the missing link between Soupy Sales and Jerry Springer, right? <laughs> well, uh, Soupy Sales, I'll cop to, but uh, Jerry Springer. I think Jerry Springer took uh, he took something from the show, but he yeah. he forgot to take the comedy. My show wasn't there. We weren't no. trying to have people well, beat, beat the hell out of each other. You no, know? you had a dollop of Sam Donaldson. I'll give you that. Hey, but Richard, <laughs> eleven years ago, you know, you say if you're wrong about something, you correct it. Eleven years ago, I asked you about your father, who you sort of. Pre- perpetuated the canard that the dropping of those two weapons of mass destruction on the Japanese 77 years ago, uh, within a week you know, ago, was the reason we, we had to drop those weapons. Have you rethought that? No, 
though. I still think, well, I, I, think I you really should. Because since then, I looked. I remember three. you calling me about this, and you want to know oh, something? Thanks. My friend well, Jay Diamond, who is a radio yeah. host, he absolutely agrees with you, and we argue about this constantly because so the, whether or not it was appropriate to drop the atomic yes. bomb. And I think right. if I think if Truman had not decided to use the ultimate weapon when we had it, and we had started either a, uh, uh, first of all, if we were going to, uh, you know, um, um, surround them and embargo every every mm. bit of food coming and starving them to death, I don't think that, I think more people would have died. But I think an invasion, certainly more people would have died. But but the other the other part of this is, if Truman had not used that ultimate weapon, and we had had to go a different route or an invasion, I think Truman would have been impeached. Richard, the Soviets declared war three days before we dropped them. I know. They were marching down the archipelago. They would have occupied the Uh, Japanese. Well, actually, they were not marching down. Well, let me correct you. They were not marching down the archipelago. What they were were they were in Manchuria. And, in fact, um, the Soviets and the Japanese were at war for two weeks after the atom bomb, after Japan's surrender in in, – was it Manchuria or in in, in China? There were eighty thousand soldiers killed, uh, wow. Japanese and Russians, after the atom bomb was dropped. Eighty thousand. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Whether it's the politics of seventy seven years ago or the foreign right. policy of today, we're going to cover it all with Richard Bay. You have comments, questions, uh, thoughts. We will get to you throughout the next few minutes. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. 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 What's the buzz? Well, every weeknight on WABC in New York, uh, the audience would know that this song, which was initially made famous from the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar, was the beginning of a radio boxing match that was second to none uh, with The Buzz with Steve Malzberg and Richard Bay. Very, very pleased to have Richard Bay. I always thought Richard it was Bay. Curtis and Kuby for adults. <laughs> uh, that's one way of uh, of looking at it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, Curtis and Kuby without the level of anger management and restraint that was always present in the morning show, that's for sure. Um, hey, real quick, before we uh, run out of time, give me your sort of quick take on the uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago, what the political implications are, and not that you have inside information about what the grand right. jury is looking at, but where you think it's going legally. Well, as well. I, I think we're, you know... We're still in the midst of it, um, and at least Ron DeSantis didn't send the National Guard in to protect Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> what if that had happened? I mean, there's so much misinformation out there. Until we know, you know, exactly what this is connected to, we know the three crimes were mentioned, you know, uh, going in. Uh, it, it, it's very difficult to say how this will all play out. But you're but, not ready to defund the FBI yet? Like, uh, not, at, not at all. I, do people remember that one week before the election, Fox News, uh, Brett Baer was on the air saying that the FBI was leaking to them that Hillary was about to be indicted. 
There's a, there's a headline on that. You could go look it up. It's on Real Clear Politics still. And that, that was an FBI leak. And people forget that back then it was the Democrats who were saying the New York field office. Mm. It was Joseph Kalstrom who had been Jim FBI. Kallstrom. Jim Kalstrom. Right. He had been the FBI chief. He was working with Giuliani. And they were leaking stuff. Giuliani was on television saying something big is going to happen next week. And then what happened was they found um, Anthony Weiner's, uh, Huma Aberdeen's uh, right. computer. Yeah, Weiner sat in that chair recently, and he uh, he he takes issue with the the uh, the conventional wisdom that the discovery of that laptop played a, a role in uh, in Trump's election. I mean, he said he, he basically said there was nothing on the laptop and that. Uh, yeah, but that's know. but it didn't matter right. because it was out there and Trump used it. And Trump went on the as soon as Fox News said Hillary's about to be indicted. He went on the campaign trail and said, have you heard the news? She's about to be indicted. I think that last thing did play a role in it because pe- the people who were sort of on the fence said, I enough with this Michigas. I, this other guy seems like he's nuts, but let's take a chance on him. I mean, it was, you know, obviously she won more votes, and that's not the way we select a president. But it was it was pretty close in many places. Do you think if there's a Trump versus Biden rematch that uh, do you feel how confident do you feel in Biden winning again? <laughs> 60, 70 percent. So you think there's a, a real chance that Trump could win the the election if it's a Trump-Biden rematch? Well, I thought last time people would say to me, could, do you think Trump could win this election? I said, I said, possibly, but not probably. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I'd feel about this. Politics, you don't know what's going to pop up. That's for sure. That is for sure. 800-848-9222. Helen is in Fairfield, Connecticut. Hello, Helen. Hello there, guys. Um, I'm definitely not here to flatter um, Mr. Bay. Well, you could sure. flatter me if that Good. would make you no, feel no, better. I, you, I, you I like. Oh, um, the, I'm obviously tuning in. I have no idea who you're going to have on the show. And um, I get hungry at about 1 o'clock. So what else am I supposed to do other than listen to you? <laughs> I'll take but, it. Um, but, but seriously, that's probably true. However... When I heard the pics of Stacey Abrams and Pete Buttigieg, who has done absolutely nothing, I mean nothing, to advance his position, I do not understand those pics. I mean, these are your dream candidates. You've given me a nightmare. Well, that's well, your opinion. Yeah. So uh, do you want to uh, add anything as to why those two are your are your picks? I mean, you mentioned the identity I think politics they are both, aspect. No, right? but, yeah, but that's not the reason. Well, the so, reason yeah, is gonna... they're the two of the most articulate people to, and two of the most people who are articulate in, in creating a vision for the future for America. I mean, when you talk to Pete Buttigieg, he doesn't evade a question. He answers the question, and he doesn't answer it in a sentence. He answers it in a paragraph. And I believe that he has done some stuff, as uh, some important things. I think, remember we had uh, the, the supply chain uh, problems? Uh, they had to work to clear that up. It was really, what do we have, 80? We had 80 ships off the coast waiting to get to the docks in California. And within a month, it was down to like 20 ships. And and now the supply chain problems are are, are, are easing. We're going to have an, an electric car future. We are, regardless of what anybody says. We're going to have that. And um, 
uh, when we're talking about transportation. Uh, the the airports are better. Have you been to LaGuardia lately? Although that's not Pete Buttigieg didn't do it, it's right? Been, but LaGuardia, which used to be the pits of all American airports, I went to the the new Delta terminal. It's incredible. It's beautiful. And but, yeah, but, go ahead. But before I lose you, I, I wanted to get your take on the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan. Very controversial. Uh, now there's a second congressional de- yeah, delegation yeah. that's going to Taiwan in case we didn't make our point with the first one. Uh, g- give me your take. It's very clear the Biden White House did not want her to go. It's uh, very clear the Chinese very upset about this. Do you think that she did the right thing by going? Yeah, I don't think, I, you know, when you have an invitation to go to a country, a third country shouldn't prohibit you from going, not, especially not not an American or an American politician. I I think she was right to go. It's, you know, the Chinese are, are, are you know, going through their rent. Chinese got a lot of problems right now. Their economy is not in good shape anymore. Um, and uh, neither is Russia's, by the way. You mm-hmm. know, Russia just announced their, their first uh, quarter GDP after the war, and they're, they're negative 4%. Now you know what, what were we down ne- negative yeah, point negligible. one point yeah. one or point they're two. They're down. They're down four percent. Their GDP. Yeah, yeah. and uh, this uh, zero COVID policy that they have in China, China. it uh, doesn't seem like that is no. going to do any no, any wonders down for their factories and yeah. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Arthur is in Bayside. Hello, Arthur. Uh, hi, Frank. Uh, this is for Richard. Uh, I, I understand uh, he has to make a buck, you know, and get more work, and and that's okay. But I wish he would at least admit that he hates Trump. Yeah, and, I, I don't uh, think he's a secret uh, Trump uh, admirer, critic, right? I mean, you, you're not. I don't. I don't it's as... not that I hate Trump. I hate what Trump has done to this country. That's what I hate. I mean, you know, I, I don't have well, a per, I don't have a personal animosity for him. If anything, I think he's a pathetic uh, creature. Um, very I think good, I, good. I'm glad you you but, you bring that up. Also, Richard, I'm kind of but that's not hatred. That's not hatred. What? That's not hatred. I think he's missed. Oh, oh, the way you went on Facebook with me on Richard's uh, post. Oh, trust what? me, what? it was pretty what? hateful. I didn't call John him. Richard. John Richard, remember this is Arthur Pilibosian, okay, yeah, so the Armenian. Uh, oh, all right, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. you have and, a thing and, about okay, Armenia. No, and you had a thing hold. about. No, no, you hold it. You hold it. No, you, I'm you, not no, hold you, it no, with you. no, you, no, had a, you, had a, you had a, you had a, you had a burr in your shorts about the Turks. I know that's what your thing is. I was going to bring that up. That's what your problem is. He's an Armenian who went after me because my grandfather, who was a Jew, uh, came from Turkey. He was a Sephardic Jew. And now he's calling me about hatred? He went on, oh, my God, the things he said about me and the Turks and my ancestors who were Jewish. Wow. Gee, uh, you know, those Facebook feuds, they really... uh... Yeah, but you know what? I'm not going to let that guy bully me yeah, around. Yeah, why, no, why should you? You know, let, we only have about a minute left, but I did want to ask you. I've noticed on Facebook you engage with a lot of uh, people who are critical. In some cases, uh, critical is not the word. Hostile is the word. I, I tend to not engage because yeah. I really, it just frustrates me. Why on social media uh, do you make the decision to engage with Because with I always folks? learn something. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, people come up with different uh, arguments, especially with this thing about Mar-a-Lago. Right. Every day it's something inter- different. Oh, he has the power to declassify. Oh, it was the GSA not coordinating properly with the, with, you know, with the uh, archives uh, authority. Oh, there's there's a different excuse every day. Oh, there's nothing classified here. I mean. There are so I'm, I'm trying to think of all the. There's been so many, and they and they, you know what? It's all Steve Bannon's philosophy, which is cloud everything up with a pile of crap. That's what, what, what was he said? Unleash the crap uh, so everything gets money along those right, lines. Right. Uh, check out the Richard Bay Talk podcast. Search it on YouTube. Subscribe. I watch it every week. I think uh, uh, Richard, w- if you were uh, still on the air these days, what is it you say? Don't let the media matrix melt with your and mind. Right? I, I love the Armenians, and I think what the Turks did during that Holocaust was terrible. Okay. Right. Do- Richard Bay, you'll come back soon. But but that was a hundred years ago. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Coming up this hour, uh, we will talk with Dr. Zudi Jasser about the attack on Salman Rushdie and what that means for the future of Western Islamic relations and all that stuff. I'm looking forward to that conversation. This is a story, and oh, by the way, next hour, I'm going to be joined in an exclusive by Sal Greco. If that name sounds familiar, that's because he was in the news the last week or two for being fired from the NYPD. He was serving with the NYPD for about 14, 15 years, and uh, he was portrayed in the press as somebody that was involved in the January 6th situation, a friend of Roger Stone, Fired from the NYPD, he and his attorneys have announced that they plan to file a $25 million lawsuit. So as I understand it, this is going to be his first interview on that subject. So we're going to get into exactly what he did to get fired. He's been gagged for the last 19 months or so. And uh, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, we'll uh, we'll get his take on what this means for the future of the department, what it means for the future of free speech in America, and a whole lot more now. This is a story which sounds very positive, and believe me, I realize the potential upside here is enormous. However, I still can't help worry about the privacy implications here. Headline in the New York Times this weekend, hospital and drug maker move to build vast database of New Yorkers' DNA. Patients will be asked if their genetic sequence can be added to a database shared with a pharmaceutical company in a quest to cure a multitude of diseases. So the Mount Mount Sinai Health System began an effort this week to build this huge database of patient genetic information that can be studied by researchers and by a large pharmaceutical company. Now, before I tell you the rest of the information here, the thing that it's important to keep in mind here is that this pharmaceutical company is a private business. They have one goal, that is to maximize profits. 
So when they're in the, the, the studying and sequencing DNA and keeping track of DNA and diseases, they're not doing that because of altruism. They're doing that because they want to somehow market or improve or create a drug that will make them lots of money. And I'm always a little leery about giving entities like that access to my DNA. Now, the goal here is to search for treatment for illnesses ranging from schizophrenia to kidney disease. But this effort to gather genetic information for many patients collected during routine blood tests is raising some serious privacy concerns. So the data will be rendered anonymously. And Mount Sinai said it had no intention of sharing it with anyone other than the researchers. But consumer or genealogical databases, as we've seen before, and I've been very outspoken on this issue, full of genetic information, Ancestry.com, GED Match, they have been used by detectives searching for genetic clues that might help them solve old crimes. That's one of the reasons that I've never given my DNA to one of these testing websites. I mean, I'm curious about my DNA genetic profile and who I might be related to, what relatives I might have out there that I am unaware of. But I have always said that I don't want to help them arrest one of my relatives in the future. And the the refrain from a lot of folks is always, well, then your relatives shouldn't commit crimes. Fine. All right. Vast sets of genetic sequences can unlock new insights into all sorts of diseases and might also pave the way for new treatments. That's what the folks at Mount Sinai are saying. But the only way to compile those research databases is to first convince huge numbers of people to agree to have their genomes sequenced. So beyond chasing the next breakthrough drug, researchers hope that this database when paired with patient medical records, will provide new insights into how the interplay between genetic and socioeconomic factors, such as poverty or exposure to air pollution, can affect people's lives. Alexander Charney, professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, he's the person overseeing this. He said this is really transformative. The health system hopes to eventually amass a database of genetic sequences for one million patients, which would mean the inclusion of roughly one out of every 10 New York City residents. The effort began last week, and this is not Mount Sinai's first attempt to build a genetics database. For some 15 years, Mount Sinai has been slowly building a bank of biological samples or a biobank called BioMe with about 50,000 DNA sequences so far. However, Researchers have been frustrated at the slow pace, which they attribute to the cumbersome process they use to gain consent and enroll patients. Multiple surveys and a lengthy one-on-one discussion with a Mount Sinai employee that sometimes can run 20 minutes. So most of that consent process is going by the wayside with this new database. Mount Sinai has jettisoned the health surveys and boiled down the procedure to watching a short video and providing a signature. This week, it began trying to enroll most patients who were receiving blood tests as part of their routine care. So you know why they're doing this. You know where your information is going. You know that you're being told that, one, this is going to be anonymous, and two, this is going to be used to come up with better drugs. 
if you go for a blood test at a Mount Sinai medical facility, are you going to give them permission to sequence your DNA here or your genome? Pardon me if I don't always use the proper terminology. I'm a radio person, not a scientist or a doctor. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I have to tell you, my, and I think I might have, before I got so gung-ho with this stuff, years ago, it might have even been Mount Sinai, I think I consented to allowing them to use my DNA as part of a psoriasis research project. So I might, they probably already have my DNA. But if I go for a blood test or have blood drawn for any reason, and I give blood every two months pretty much, every uh, not quite every 54 days, but every at least every 60 or 70 days, I am not going to give permission. And there's no rational reason behind it. But I don't love the idea of them messing around with my DNA and keeping track of my DNA and having a drug company that has my DNA info. And I know they say it's going to be anonymous, but one... Uh, what am I going to rely on the on the on the honesty and the good nature of a private sector drug company that has had no problem ripping off patients, consumers, and taxpayers for decades? No. Also, again, I know people get upset when I bring this up. What if what if law enforcement's looking for my DNA? What do they? What do I need to be handing it out to hospitals for? Help convince me that I'm wrong here. That's 1-800-848-9222. A number of large biobank programs already exist across the country, but the one that Mount Sinai is seeking to build would be the first large-scale one to draw participants primarily from New York City. But you can bet if it works here, they're going to do the same thing in L.A. They'll do the same thing in Vegas. They'll do the same thing in Chicago. They'll do the same thing in a lot of key municipal centers around around the country. The program is pretty revolutionary. It could well mark a shift in how many New Yorkers think about their genetic information from something private or unknown to something they've donated to research. So the project will involve sequencing a huge number of DNA samples. Now, this could cost tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. To avoid that cost, Mount Sinai, has partnered with Regeneron, a large pharmaceutical company that's going to do the actual sequencing work. In return, the company will gain access to the genetic sequences and the partial medical records of each participant. According to Mount Sinai doctors leading the program, they also intend to share data with other researchers as well. I don't know about you. There's just something about this that doesn't feel right, at least not for me. What do you think? Call and let me know. Eight open lines, 800-848-9222. The Mount Sinai researchers have access to anonymous electronic health records of each patient who participates. The data is then going to be shared with Regeneron on a more limited basis. The other thing that I get concerned about with this stuff is, okay, they say it's anonymous. They say it's shared with Regeneron on a limited basis. Every week, I read a different story or see a different story on the news all about someone's information being hacked and their social security numbers exposed, their credit card numbers are exposed, their passwords are all exposed. Who's to say they're not going to be able to, once all your DNA is uh, is uploaded to whatever Mount Sinai is using to keep track of all this stuff, 
Who's to say that they're not going to be able to hack into Mount Sinai's database or Regeneron's database? And then what are you supposed to do? These hackers are going to have all this pretty substantial personal information on you? I don't know about you. Uh, Count me out. The company may access lab reports, vital signs, and diagnoses. So when paired with health records... These large genetic data sets can help researchers search out rare mutations that either have a strong association with a certain disease or may protect against it. Now, that all sounds positive. It remains to be seen if Mount Sinai, uh, among the city's largest hospital systems, can reach its target of enrolling a million patients in the program, which the hospital is calling the Mount Sinai Million Health Discoveries Program. If it does, the resulting database will be among the largest in the country, alongside one that's run by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, as well as a project run by the National Institute of Health that has the goal of eventually enrolling a million Americans, uh, although they're nowhere near that. So a health system in northeast Pennsylvania, they've also built a database of more than 185,000 DNA sequences. So everyone is going in this direction. That was also, that Pennsylvania situation was also through a partnership with Regeneron. That database supposedly played a role in the discovery of mutations that can protect against obesity and fatty liver disease. Once again, we end up talking about fatty liver disease. Third show in a row where fatty liver disease is the uh, subject du jour. Regeneron uh, is something that I never even heard of, I don't think, prior to three years ago. They became widely known for the monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID. And uh, they have sequenced and studied the DNA of approximately 2 million patient volunteers, mainly through collaborations with health systems, including a large biobank in uh, Britain. But the number of patients that Mount Sinai hopes to enroll is a game changer. And if you couple that with their racial and ethnic diversity and whatever we know about their socioeconomic history, they're hoping to get a lot of good information about this. I want to think that this is going to be great, but I just, I'm worried. Maybe it's my own sense of paranoia. So uh, they say that people of European ancestry are typically overrepresented in these data sets, which means that uh, genetic tests people get for cancer risk are far more attuned to genetic variants that are common among white cancer patients. So um, I guess maybe a lot of black patients still have some lingering paranoia over the fact that there was a time in the not-too-distant past when they were injected with things like syphilis and being told that it was something else. So, I mean, who can blame patients of all races, but especially black patients, for having a little paranoia here? 800-848-9222. Mount Sinai has seven hospitals in New York. They see about 1.1 million patients a year and handle more than 3 million patient visits to doctor's offices. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. 
I'm certainly interested to see where it goes. All right. Sal Greco joining me next hour to talk about his firing from the police department coming up in just a minute. We're going to talk with Dr. Zudi Jasser about uh, the stabbing of Salman Rushdie. 800-848-9222. Dr. Zudi Jasser, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, the world is still reeling, at least most aspects of the world are still reeling from the news of the attack on Friday of legendary literary giant Salman Rushdie attacked in uh, at a festival celebrating things like free speech and free expression in upstate New York. Now, it is amazing to me that in the 21st century in the United States of America, people still have to worry about being attacked for things that they've written, let alone things they've written decades ago. And what some people have said and what many have wondered is if there's something going on within Islam itself, within radical Islam specifically, which is completely antithetical to free speech. Somebody that has spent a lot of time thinking about this subject and speaking about it is Dr. Zudi Jasser, Navy veteran, president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and the author of the book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, An American Muslim Patriot's Fight to save his faith. Dr. Jasser, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Anytime, Frank. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Jasser, just so folks understand where you're coming from, what exactly is the American Islamic Forum for Democracy? Well, we formed after 9-11 and felt that uh, while 9-11 was uh, uh, perpetrated by al-Qaeda, a radical Islamic uh, terror organization, the the root cause of what we were fighting is not a, a, a tactic of terrorism, but rather an ideology. And as Muslims, as patriotic American Muslims, we felt that the, the root cause to defeat this political Islam, the identification of the Islamic State, the loyalty of certain group of political movements of Muslims like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, of the Sunni side, the uh, Shia Khomeinists of the Iranian side, and many, so many Islamist movements around the world, that ultimately some do it nonviolently, some do it violently. What's antithetical to them is freedom, is liberty, is the West. And America really has, I think, the secret sauce on how to defeat political Islam because we were founded in a battle against theocracy. So the American Islamic Forum for Democracy was formed to, to take that Americanism and use it to not only defeat political Islam, but to begin to instill in Muslims the the idea that the best way to protect religious freedom is through American concepts of freedom and and uh, put to bed, if you will, political Islam and theocracy. And and you are uh, just so folks know you are a Muslim. Absolutely, we're raised as a as a devout Orthodox Sunni Muslim in a small town in Wisconsin. And uh, my parents escaped uh, persecution in Syria. My father escaped uh, the Ba'athists, uh, which are still running Syria with the Assad regime, uh, the father and the son. And uh, even though it's a Muslim-majority country, 
we, I was raised in understanding of the Quranic scripture that I could practice my faith more freely and more under, you know, with more understanding here in America than I could in any Muslim-majority mm-hmm. country. Oh, what do we know about this attacker of Salman Rushdie? What, uh, what might have motivated him and what might have inspired this 24-year-old, fairly young man to choose to go embark on such a violent act? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's so important that you ask that question. Uh, It it appears that most places, other than really in France, France has really identified that uh, they're fighting Islamic radicalism, and they've come to the streets uh, not only after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, which was similar, a magazine that uh, had the temerity to criticize the prophet. Uh, The attack on Salman Rushdie has been 33, 34 years in the making since 1988, when uh, his book uh, was published, and uh, Salman Rushdie then had a fatwa, a religious ruling uh, by the jurists of Iran that basically declared a $3 million bounty on his head and uh, uh, asked the Muslim community in the world, which uh, is 1.6, 1.7 billion people, uh, to execute uh, that uh, charge in, of jihad. And ultimately, uh, you know, many of his translators, uh, a number of his translators were killed in, in Japan and Italy and elsewhere. And uh, Salman Rushdie was given, uh, uh, thankfully, protection in Britain, became Sir Salman Rushdie. Um, but uh, in many ways, uh, now as we see Iran ascend, the radicalization cycles that this guy, met, uh, 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 Matar, uh, Hadi Matar, uh, has gone through in over 30 years. There's been multiple. The war against political Islam didn't start with 9/11. It, uh, you could say it possibly started in 79 with the hostage crisis, but also at that time, the Saudi mosques uh, were uh, sieged by uh, a Wahhabi terrorists in, in Mecca. Uh, you had the Muslim Brotherhood ascending uh, from Egypt uh, globally. So you had multiple political movements of Islamist militants and sort of this viral ideology of Islamic caliphism to want to build a caliphate uh, that uh, began to ascend through the middle of the 20th century. And uh, uh, Hadi is this this terrorist. Uh, it's sort of surprising to me that the news stories never identified the assassin uh, 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 who attempted to assassinate uh, Salman Rushdie as an Islamist terrorist, which he is. He was found online through Vice News to be communicating directly with the Islamic Republican Guard Corps, which Thankfully, the Trump administration labeled a terror organization, but the Biden administration was actually had on the table to remove that. He's communi- he had a, a driver's license that had a fake name that included the first and last name of, of uh, uh, a confidant of Nasrallah, who was the head of Hezbollah, a major terrorist organization. So, again, this guy sort of obviously was another terror uh, failure, anti-terror failure. And we've let our guard down, and the Islamists of Iran responded today and said, oh, well, it's not our fault. He didn't work for us. We, you know, this is Salman Rushdie's fault because, you know, he antagonized uh, milit- he antagonized Muslims all over the world, and he, he bas- basically they said he had it coming. I mean, what they said today should educate Americans everywhere about how Muslims are radicalized. They said they didn't do it, but yet— they said he had it coming, which is exactly how they radicalize our community. Mm. Now, uh, straighten one thing out for us, and people are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser. 
There were a lot of reports that said that the fatwa that the supreme leader of Iran had issued uh, calling on Muslims to kill Salman Rushdie had been rescinded. And then I've seen some some other coverage that indicates that uh, a fatwa like that can never be rescinded. What is the what are the facts about what the status of that fatwa is or was? The, the bottom line is if it had been rescinded, they would have said so today from their state uh, uh, media arms that uh, uh, discussed and tried to say that they didn't uh, uh, he had nothing to do with them. So they didn't say the fatwa was gone. And then you look at other major Islamist, uh, uh, you know, centers of influence, whether it's in Cairo at Al-Azhar University or in Mecca at uh, Wahhabi universities or in Karachi at uh, Islamist uh, universities there, none of which have uh, uh, dismissed that religious ruling. And uh, basically they, they feel that – and let me explain to you just briefly where this fatwa comes from. It's mm. not just the ruling of one jurist who said he should be killed. When you, and this is why our organization believes the only way to defeat radical Islam is to end the idea of the Islamic State. When you have an Islamic State – Sedition or blasphemy becomes equal to sedition because the Constitution is the Quran. Mm. So therefore, if you disagree with religious interpretations of the Quran or you write a book about fake verses that exist, etc., then you've committed blasphemy, sedition, and treason against its state, which is apostasy. So therefore, I can tell you as a former naval officer, the only country and constitution I'd die for is America. I would never die for my Quran, my you know, my, my faith, this is something between me and God. If you have an Islamic state, the prophet at the time had a religious state, and there were no secular states at the time. If you're going to have military cohesion in your Muslim military, you have to then kill those who would leave. When I was in the U.S. Navy, you couldn't just leave. You'd have an unauthorized absence. If you fought against your own military, it would be treasonous, etc. So there's even things in the West that we would agree that keep our military cohesive, but it's not based on faith identity. It's based on a constitution under God, which is open to all universally, which is exactly why this fatwa hits at the core, why what happened to Salman Rushdie should wake up everybody, because it hits at the core of every front of this battle, from the ideological to the military. Uh, That Iranian reaction that you cited, where their uh, spokesman said, in this attack, we do not consider anyone other than Salman Rushdie and his supporters worthy of blame and even condemnation by insulting the sacred matters of Islam and crossing the red lines of more than one and a half billion Muslims and all followers of the divine religions, Salman Rushdie has exposed himself to the anger and rage of the people. I mean, that is a a pretty alarming, if that's the Iranian regime's way of trying to take tempers down a little bit. I'd hate to see what happens next for Salman Rushdie or people that have spoken out in support of him, people like J.K. Rowling, people like me, and a lot of other folks. Exactly. I mean, I have to tell you, I have a podcast uh, coming out uh, in a few days, and, you know, the title of it is How Unsettling This Is. And when people say, where are the moderate voices of Islam? I mean, look at Hardly any coverage about the root cause of what happened to Salman Rushdie. Hardly any coverage of the fact that this was a jihadi, 
Where are the moderate Muslim voices in response to this? They should be telling the Iranians, oh, okay, so if he had it coming, therefore the green revolution that was through your streets of Muslims who were raging against your your uh, 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 theocracy, your supremacist, militant, genocidal government is the one that actually deserves the rage of Muslim people because you're the worst thing that's ever happened to Islam. That's what Muslims should be saying. But the Council on American-Islamic Relations stays silent and gives basically an offhanded comment. Well, meanwhile, they spent months complaining about Jamal Khashoggi and other other folks that were attacked. And the bottom line is, is the hypocrisy is rampant. Ilhan Omar wanted to get – she got arrested in front of the, our Supreme Court here two weeks ago claiming she cared about abortion rights. When, when it actually comes to human rights, she sits silent with no comment mm. in the past few days about what happened to Salman Rushdie. One after the other, the, the, a lot of the Muslim leadership in this country is bought into the Islamic establishment – and their main constituency they care about are not free thinkers like Salman Rushdie and others who really are icons of, of speaking out that we should protect. But rather their main constituency are the Islamic establishment through the world of either petro-Islam or Iranian supremacist Islam. Why, help folks understand this, right? I mean, I, I think we understand that uh, the Iranian regime is a fundamentalist, uh, you know, Shia Muslim regime. I think a lot of folks understand that the, the Saudi regime is a fundamentalist Sunni regime. But why would the – why would anyone – why would the Iranian regime or any fundamentalist element of Islam get so worked up about a fictitious novel, which Salman Rushdie has even said he doesn't think is among the best work that he's written. Why would anybody care to the point of willing to being willing to uh, wage violence on another human being? Why would anyone care about this? They, they haven't even read it. it. It's not about the actual. You're, you're looking at it like an intellectual westerner who who actually looks at substance and 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 wants to argue the the actual facts of the case the, these are are thuggish dictators who find things to to legitimize their power and will in a machiavellian sense find an, an antagonist which is the other and say that they are bigots against us and use the islamophobic card to say that somehow any criticism of Islam is actually bigotry against the collective Muslim, they call me an Orthodox Muslim who who believes in prayer and fasting and the authenticity of my scripture and and all the things that I try to teach my kids and other generations. They they call me an apostate who is like a a, a treasonous uh, agent within the community, which has been said in mosques and and other places about me. Why? Because it's all about power. They use religion for power. They don't use it because they care about the faith or they care about humanity. It is all about power, and they will, they will find folks from outside the faith to say that somehow they are the enemy of Islam, and that's how they consolidate uh, uh, both uh, governmental and uh, uh, ideological power. You've indicated that the reaction not only from the Iranian regime is, to put it mildly, Insufficient, but you seem pretty unhappy with the reaction from President Biden. How come? Well, if you listen to President Biden's statement, it was initially very strong on defense of free speech and Salman Rushdie, but it was completely absent of any discussion of as if as if somehow Salman Rushdie was talking about 
some kind of he was speaking in a vacuum just about whatever he wanted. Salman Rushdie specifically uh, has been talking about the threat to free speech, the threat to the threat to free thinking that's coming from Islamic theocracy and and these regimes and especially uh, governments like Iran and their uh, uh, attempt to try to control any criticism of our scripture and and, and of our faith. So. That w- none of that commentary came from President Biden, as if somehow we're ignorant of the reality of what Salman Rushdie lived. Uh, the the charges against the attacker are second degree. I don't even understand how it's second degree murder when he came, bought a ticket to the event, brought knives with him. It was clearly premeditated. And I would love to see hate crime uh, uh, federal charges brought against this individual uh, um, for what he has done. Uh, but no, none of that's going to happen. It's simply looked at uh, uh, no different than you would any of the other killings that are happening throughout uh, uh, major cities across the country, which is absurd. And President Biden didn't address any of that as if as if somehow it occurred in a vacuum. Uh, talking with Dr. Judy Jasser, he is uh, the author of the book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, an American Muslim Patriot's Fight to Save His Faith. Uh, I had a lot of callers yesterday when we were talking about this taking issue with the inadequate security that the venue provided or that uh, Salman Rushdie himself might have uh, been lacking in uh, making sure that he had adequate security. Do you think that that's a legitimate concern? I I think it's just such a crying shame that you have to worry about being potentially attacked for your literary work. But do you think the folks that brought up the security issue have a uh, legitimate beef? Uh, I can tell you absolutely. I, I, it's it's legitimate. Many of us, uh, we have a coalition of reformers in our Muslim reform movement, all of whom have been threatened. Uh, we have a larger coalition called the Clarity Coalition, Champions for Liberty Against Islamist Tyranny, that includes people like Ayan Hirsi Ali, Esra Nomani, and so many others that often will get threats from uh, militants and, and other radicals. And uh, But my question to them is, how would you like us to pay for that? Uh, mm-hmm. I can tell you that in 2012, uh, right after the uh, Syrian uh, revolution started, uh, I was very outspoken about being not only anti-Islamist, but also anti-Assad. And I was getting it from every end possible because I had family in Aleppo and Damascus and Al-Qaeda in Syria posted uh, threats against me and my family uh, on their, their websites through. And I was I was uh, informed through a piece uh, through Israeli intelligence about it. And we were concerned about the t- concerned about it significantly at the time and beefed up security as much as I could for some period of time. But that cost a significant amount. And our our startup foundations don't have any of the uh, expenses that we can afford uh, compared to our enemies in the Islamist groups, let alone uh, what the government and others may do. And it was it horrified me to hear that Salman Rushdie had, you know, actually there was a police officer assigned or one or two even assigned to that event. What were they doing? Uh, I don't understand if they were there, how uh, this guy was able to rush onto the stage and stab him so many times Mm. before they got there to pull him off. It was just, you know, the ones that were there, they will assign sometimes police officers. But this is the life and why, you know, we will be able to defeat the Islamists. Every time I've had a debate with them on stage at Duke University uh, uh, in Chicago and and, and, in L.A. and elsewhere across the country, we defeat them in debate when people realize that we're not anti-Muslim. We just want to talk about real criticism of ideas that need modernization. And and yet 
we aren't able to get the platforms because people want to allow us to be marginalized by these folks. When you asked earlier, why does Iran do this? They want to put fear into our hearts. And the left is, is too, too much of an accomplice in allowing this fear to exist because they're so busy worrying about being labeled Islamophobic that the, this is like a bigotry of low expectations, which then ends up causing us to, to be so afraid of the security situation at our events that we really can't have them. Well, I will point out, though, that uh, Bill Maher, who I think people would view as somebody that's on the leftward end of the political spectrum, he's been very, very consistently critical, not only of this most recent attack, but of uh, radical Islam and political Islam in general. So there are elements on the left and the right uh, that are uh, very, very quick to uh, to call out this sort of uh, this sort of behavior. I'm curious. One of the things I mentioned yesterday was the Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, season where they did a play, a musical about Salman Rushdie and the fatwa. And a big theme throughout that episode and the season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is that there's a fatwa itself on Larry David. Is that kind of humor, that kind of uh, entertainment, is that helpful at all in liberalizing um, Islam at all? Or is that something that, uh, for lack of a better description, kind of pokes the bear a little bit and risks getting uh, tensions even more inflamed? No, I think it's very helpful. There, there is nothing more disarming than uh, um, comedy. And uh, uh, a lot of if you look now on on TikTok and and YouTube and others, you know, folks that might not be as heaped in the theological debate that we are, uh, young 20 something kids that are are doing unbelievably uh, brilliant videos that mock sort of our parental generation and and some of the Arab tribalism that exists and a lot of the other uh, uh, sort of uh, 20th century or 13th century ideas. You saw this trial just last week of uh, uh, this father that uh, in in New York from the guy was from Dallas and killed his daughters, and uh, the the trial uh, was held. And you know, as horrific as that act of terror is, there's a lot of underlying tribalism that exists in the way kids are treated that needs to be treated long before they kill their kids. They often will treat them in ways that that needs to be revealed as misogynistic, as as third world and not into uh, giving them the rights to property, to speech, to to criticism of their parents and other things. I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, about how true reform is going to come not only from countering the end point of the conveyor belt to the militancy, but the beginning point, which has to do with hate for America, the anti-Semitism, uh, a lot of the underlying things that Salman Rushdie sp- speaks about and so many other thinkers speak about is not just about the, the core, most graphic parts of the debate, but actually some of the behaviors that need to be countered in comedy has really been one of the areas. There are some Iranian comedians that are just fantastic at disarming the theocrats where they don't know what to do and they, they lose their constituencies as a result. 
In terms of seeking a solution for how to put an end to this sort of violence or at least significantly reduce the likelihood that authors are going to be stabbed when they go for a talk in the United States, it's clear that you support more secular governments rather than theocratic Islamist government uh, you know, run by Sharia law. What else needs to be done when you say there needs to be reform within the Muslim community? What does that look like? What is the next step or steps in getting Islam to a, uh, a better place? We need to get beyond the apologetic. We need to understand that this is not uh, uh, simply a psychiatric issue. Uh, we need to relate it as Americans to our founding fathers, where our founding fathers were fighting against theocracy. And look at how central it is to our culture and understanding and appreciation of, of what our founding fathers brought to the, the fight against theocracy, but the fight for Americanism in a religious country under God, but yet had a separation uh, of an establishment clause that, you know, we still today debate what is the separation of church and state, but at the end of the day, it had an establishment clause that prevented the establishment of religion. If we're going to have that debate, if we're going to reform and defeat radical Islam, we need to have that debate. And Americans need to understand that the jihadists are, are taking advantage of our domestic obsessions, of our political partisanship that we are so obsessed with, you know, one election cycle to the next that our our ADD has has caused us to withdraw to places like Afghanistan with a rapidity. I'm not saying we should have stayed there, but the but the debacle that was that withdrawal caused us to give the propagandists and a, a, you know weapons that have been now used for a year to 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 strengthen the Taliban. So, long story short, we need to have a strategy where we say, you know what, this battle for for Western freedom and liberty is only going to be won if we begin to strategically talk about what's happening in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Egypt across one quarter of the world's population. They haven't gone through an enlightenment. They haven't gone through a reformation. And if they're going to go through that, we need to take sides. We need to take sides within the House of Islam, and there needs to be a strategy, both public and private, in that partnership with foundations and others that needs to happen. And we've not had any of that uh, investment domestically done. And I think American Muslims are uniquely positioned. We we grew up in a narrative of religious freedom that empowers us to understand our faith in a way that is the only way we can defeat radical Islam. And, and Europe right now is far ahead of us. Austria understands the diagnosis, but yet their treatment is wrong. They've outlawed political Islam as an ideology. Sebastian Kurtz did that just six months ago. Bad idea, right understanding of the problem. France is beginning to understand it. They've talked about Islamic separatism, and, and Macron, as liberal as he is, has talked about fighting against those that live in their country but yet are separatists and have never embraced French nationalism. They're having that conversation. But America, Britain, and so many other countries in the West are not having this well, conversation. Well, one, one of the issues that – and I'll, I'll end with this because uh, I do have to run – but uh, one of the issues that has repeatedly come up in the West and in Western countries like France and Austria and even the United States that have a Muslim population that is significant is the idea of a burqa ban. Now, a caller brought this up yesterday. Let me ask you, wh- where do you come down on that? A lot of Americans think that folks should be able to wear whatever 
whatever they want if it means adherence to the religion of their choice. A lot of folks view this uh, a women woman wearing a burqa as a symbol of repression. Do you think countries, including our own, should be exploring the idea of a burqa ban? Well, you know, I was on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom from 2012 to 16. I was appointed by Senator McConnell. And one of the points in which I I had a dissenting opinion from my other commissioners, my fellow commissioners, was on this issue where they made a statement condemning France with their burqa ban. And uh, I I made a a dissenting opinion that's still in that uh, in our volumes that we wrote up at the time. And my position was, you know, I'm not talking about what a woman would wear from her shoulders down. But if she's going to cover her face, we as a free society have tied public identity of an individual to their individualism, their freedom. Once you cover their face, they they lose their humanity. And this was one of the problems I had with the mask mandate during COVID was, you know, the Supreme Court actually in New York ruled that you could not have demonstrations. This was 100 years ago. You could not have demonstrations with masks, partly because they couldn't figure out who was causing violence and other things. But secondly, the Supreme Court basically said you have to be able to identify folks when they're in public places. If they commit crimes or do other other things, it will actually be a way to identify who they are. So if the burqa is the covering of the face, that is not a right. You can stay home if you want, but if you're going to be public, part of being part of the public society is allowing facial identification of who you are. On that note, Zudi Jasser, also the host of the Reform This podcast, if you want to hear more from him. It's always a treat to talk with you, sir. I'll look forward to our next discussion. Anytime. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, now a fan of. I I don't know. Do the Selena Gomez fans have a name? Are we Selena Holics or something? Or Gomez heads or Gomezites? Is there a name? And are there are there meetings that I could show up at? Is there a fan club that I can join? 
Uh, I uh, became a fan of Selena Gomez because of her acting, but she has won me over with her music and her advocacy for organ donation and things of that nature. You have any idea, Matt, what the Selena Holics are called, if anything? I don't think they're called anything, but I'm thinking maybe you should come up with that. I, I don't feel like it's my place. I feel like I'm the low man on the Selena Gomez totem pole. I need to pay my dues in the S- Selena Gomez fandom community and then work my way up to maybe four or five years being in a position to offer n- names for, for things. Uh, all right. Hey, <clears throat> real quick. I... Um, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you should. Um, you can search Morano. Excuse me. You could search uh, the other side of midnight on any podcast platform. Just hit the subscribe button, and you'll automatically get some of the uh, get all the podcasts downloaded to your pod, your iPod, or to your mobile device each and every day. And uh, if you ever notice any problems with the podcast, let us know. We have one very diligent and very vigilant emailer that caught a couple of things in yesterday's podcast that were a little out of place. So he did the right thing. He emailed us right away, and I believe we fixed all that. So whenever you notice anything that's going wrong, just let us know right away. Email me, and we'll we'll, we'll get on top of that. If you ever want to email me, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Now, uh, the last... Of the recent films that I have seen, because when I, w- I, I was on a bit of a run in after not having seen anything, I saw a whole bunch of films. Now, the last new film that I've seen and probably the last one that I'll see in a while was a film that came out about a year and a half ago. It's called The Effort List, and the F is, stands for the F word. And it's a coming-of-age film. It was on Netflix. I, yeah, I think it's still on Netflix. It was produced by Netflix. The only actor in it that I recognized was Jerry O'Connell. And I think the reason Netflix had me watch this was because that I, because I watched The Edge of Seventeen, which I watched because that was on its last day of Netflix. So it said, all right, you put this in your queue, so you got to put that in your queue as well. All right. So The Effort List is a coming-of-age film about a straight-laced high school senior who's involved with, uh, a, he's, I think, the valedictorian of his high school, and he's involved with a prank-related accident. And this, it's a comedy, it's fun. This uh, prank-related accident realigns his whole life. And then he posts this video, which goes viral, about all the things that he wishes that he'd done in life instead of chasing grades and college acceptances. And it chases and it creates this whole movement. That's why they call it the effort list. So we're so I thought it was um I thought it was okay. I mean it was not as good as The Edge of Seventeen. If you're looking for a good coming of age film, I would uh I would start with, with that one. This is fine. I mean, it's a little unrealistic. It's not that funny. It's well made. There's a decent soundtrack. It's shot okay. I think um, if you have nothing better to do, maybe put it put it on. If you're someone like me whose time is very precious and you don't necessarily have 90 minutes to waste on an okay film, I would skip it. 
I would watch something else. So that's uh, my take on the effort list. Now, um, tonight, I am having dinner with a gentleman. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this. Uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Rob Giuliano. Now, Rob Giuliano is was a listener to this show who became a listener in prison. And he started writing to me, and we have a lot of listeners in prison. Very happy to have a lot of listeners in prison. We're number one in the prison system. And he started writing to me in prison, and he asked me to write him a note to, you know, his parole board. And he got parole. And he credits this letter that I wrote for him for helping to get him out of prison. So now... He wants to take me to dinner. A very nice restaurant in Midtown. But that means I have to come into Manhattan two hours early. Now, today is kind of a busy day. So I have to add another, for lack of a better description, another chore to my day. It, it, it's, really, it's really tough and quite inconvenient, I must say. So this has me rethinking my whole approach to helping people. And helping people get out of prison. Because if every time I help someone get out of prison, I have to have dinner with them. Now, I'm starting to think maybe I should not write so many letters to get people out of prison. Maybe I should let them stay so this way I could I could take my sweet time getting into Manhattan. Because now, it's, today's a busy day. We've got a lot going on today. We, I have to go to the bank, try and change my address. Got a lot of other stuff going on. But uh, I'm I'm kind of jesting, but not really. I'm looking forward. I'm, it's one of those things where I'm sure we'll have a good time. We'll attend a great restaurant. He seems like a great guy. But it is just one more thing to do. It all just gets to be a bit much. You know, you just sometimes need a little bit of a break. All right. Uh, coming up next hour, Sal Greco is in the building. That's a conversation you're not going to want to miss. And a pretty fun Mel Brooks story, which we'll get into. Until next hour. Don't let the media matrix melt with your mind. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'm sorry uh, for the technical problem at the top of the hour there uh, with uh, the promos playing and everything. But uh, those of you that are listening on the podcast, you're just fine. For those of you listening live, we're, we're, you know, we're having a couple of technical difficulties. But bear with us. You know, we're only human, right? All right. A uh, couple of quick things. We are um, – first of all, have you ever been in a position – uh, Sal Greco is here. We're going to get to him in uh, just a few minutes. He's been fired by the NYPD. We'll find out why in just a second. But have you ever been in a position 
where someone you really looked up to, really admired, becomes just the you realize when you get to know them a little bit that they are just as screwed up as you are and maybe even a little annoying. The in cinema, one of the best examples of this that I can think of is the film uh Free Enterprise. Free Enterprise is a terrific film. William Shatner is in it. He plays a fictionalized version of himself. It's about 23 years old, but the film still holds up. And he meets these two lifelong Shatner fans. Shatner appears to them at various points of their life like a god, almost like a Humphrey Bogart in Play It Again, Sam. And they then meet Shatner once they're adults, and they realize Shatner's just as screwed up as they are, and they ultimately come to be pretty annoyed by Shatner. Has that ever happened to you? 800-848-9222. There's one or two pseudo examples that I can think of of times that that's happened to me over the years, but let me know if that's happened to you. 800-848-9222. By far, the best example of this that I've ever heard is Mel Brooks describing his encounters with Cary Grant. Now, I've heard about this story for a long time. In fact, I think the folks that wrote the film Free Enterprise actually were inspired by this story that Mel Brooks would tell in many different places about Cary Grant. And that's in part what they had in mind when they wrote that film Free Enterprise. But I finally came across Mel Brooks telling this story on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson yesterday. I'd been looking for this for a long time, and I finally came across it yesterday. So I don't know that it's really relevant to much of anything, but in my in my judgment, it's such a fun story and so much fun. There's so much uh, nasty stuff <laughs> In the news that sometimes you just need a break. And I thought this story might be just the break we need. Across the street, I saw there was another bungalow. We worked in a bungalow. And on the top of the bungalow, it said Grand Art. I said, what, what does that mean? What the hell is Grand Art? He said, well, that's Cary Grant's company. Grant Art, Grand Art. I said, well, does, does Cary Grant ever come to that bungalow? He said, yeah, sure. I said, sure. You're kidding. He said, no, he'll be here in about 10 minutes. He comes every day for lunch. He'll be here about 10 to 12. He shows up. It's it's about 11.45. He'll be here. I said, Cary Grant, I mean, I'm going to see him in person. Yes, Cary Grant will be here. So I waited by the drapes. uh, And sure enough, a guy in a double-breasted suit with a little yellow boot, Janam, walks down. He leaves this guy, jumps up the steps two at a time, bounces through the door. I said, it looked like Cary Grant. He said it was Cary Grant. Holy mackerel, Cary Grant, he's about 60 yards away from me. Cary Grant, I grew up in Brooklyn. Cary Grant, oh my God, I think I'm going to faint. He said that. And we see him every day. I said, but I don't, my, Cary Grant. (laughs) Cary Grant. (laughs) So anyway, I wait. He said, we'll be coming out to lunch. And I said, he's coming out to lunch and we're going to see him. See, there, about 10 minutes later, he bounds down the steps. I said, my God, it's Cary Grant, it's Cary Grant. So he said, come on, let's go to lunch. So we, we, we all walk down a path, and I somehow take another road, and I hear behind me, Man Brooks, Man Brooks, 
I turn around, it's Cary Grant. I bought every single one of your albums. You've made me poor, but... I said, oh, my God, he's talking to me. Cary Grant is actually talking to me. I said, Marvin, what should I do? He said, talk back to him. <laughs> but all right. I said, hello, Cary Grant. I, I called him by one name, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. I figured that was his name. Cary Grant. I didn't know him well enough to call him Mr. Grant or Cary. I called him Cary Grant. I said, hi, Cary Grant. You look good, Cary Grant. Are you really Cary Grant? And he said, come on, what are you doing? I said, uh, well, I'm going into the lunchroom there. He said, oh, the commissary. Yeah, come with me, Brian. I'll buy you lunch. Oh, my God, Cary Grant is going to buy me lunch. Oh, so I went in, and I sat next to him, and he had a hard-boiled egg. That's all he had. I don't know why. <laughs> and I had a tuna fish sandwich on, on, on whole wheat with a slice of tomato. No mayo. Hold the mayo. And I ate the sandwich, and, and then we left together, and he said, uh, walking down the path, he said, what's your favorite color? I said, blue. He said, yellow. I said, yellow is yours. Blue is mine. Said, what's your favorite car? I said, a Buick. He said, a Rolls Royce. I said, that's nice. And we talked like that, you know. Me saying Buick, he saying Rolls Royce. It was a very interesting conversation. He went to Grand Art, I went to Schwartz. I thought that was it. The next day, about a quarter to 12, we get a call. Is Mel Brooks there? Yes. It's Cary Grant. Would you like to go to lunch? Sure, Cary. All right. <laughs> Holy mackerel, Cary Grant. All right, I comb my hair. I brush my teeth with my finger. Very nervous. Cary Grant, we go in again. He has a hard-boiled leg. I have a corned beef sandwich with mustard on rye. Okay, one of the few out there that ate it that way. The rest had it with mayonnaise on white. So, he says, what do you like to play? I said, well, I, I like to play football. I like to play baseball. He said, well, I like to play party games. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, like ghost. What's, what is ghost? You dress up? No, G, you get a G. H, you get an H, ghost. Oh, fine. And we talked. Okay, interesting. He goes to Granite. I go to Schwartz. I'm back home. The next day, quarter to 12, ring, it's Carrie. All right, I meet him outside. We're going to lunch together. Me and Carrie Grant, Mel Brooks and Carrie Grant, we're holding hands. We're, we don't know what to do for each other. We don't know what to say to each other. Anyway, let me tell you the punchline. Come Friday, the phone rings, it's Carrie Grant. I said, I'm not in. <laughs> Enough, we, enough already. We didn't know what to say. I had nothing more to say to him. I said my favorite color. I said my favorite color. I mean, there was nothing more to tell him. We'll be back. We exhausted our conversation. I thought that was hysterical. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I feel like that's something a lot of people can relate to. Somebody that you idolize for a long time, that you look up to, that you worship, then you get to know them, and you find that they're just as annoying as everybody else. And I, I have a hunch that might be the case with Rob Giuliano for our dinner tonight. <laughs> By the time the entree comes out, it'll be like, oh, why am I paying for this dinner anyway? Uh, 800-848-9222 if you have a similar story. You know, there's a couple of stories that come to mind. Now, one that comes to mind, and annoying is not the right word, but somebody that I would I used to chase and then would call me very frequently and call me more quickly than I could answer the phone was Joe Franklin. Uh, Joe Franklin, my almost my entire teenage years were spent trying to be around Joe Franklin. Then... 
um, the last two or three years of Joe's life, Joe would call me three, four, five times a day, and sometimes was not always a convenient time to take the call. And if you don't answer, Joe just calls right back. So uh, I can kind of empathize in that respect. Uh, a perfect example, to be honest, is Curtis Sliwa. I, I have been a fan of Curtis for a long time. And then when you're working with Curtis, the fourth, fifth, sixth time that he calls you in any given day for not doing, you know, not uh, looking for some obscure piece of information, which you've already given him five times, it can be a little annoying. So those are my two examples of my Cary Grant moment. What's your Cary Grant moment? 800-848-9222. It doesn't actually have to involve Cary Grant. Although I never got to meet Cary Grant. I would have loved to. I'm a big fan of his uh, of his films. Loved everything that he did. But uh, one of my favorite Cary Grant anecdotes is I-, I used to really enjoy spending time with Mark Simone. We used to be pretty good friends. And Mark... Has the is the best storyteller in the world. If you think he's a good storyteller on the radio, you ought to see him tell a story in real life because he's got the best anecdotes about anybody. You throw any celebrity's name at him, Mark has some sort of a, an anecdote involving that story. And Mark is describing one day where Cary Grant meets Frank Sinatra at a party and Frank Sinatra is surrounded by a few guys that are ruffians. You know, maybe Jilly is there, maybe some other guys that uh, may or may not be involved in organized crime. And um, and I, I, it's been 20 years since I heard this story, so I may get certain aspects of it wrong, but I got such a kick out of it at the time that I'll, I'm telling it anyway. So Cary Grant meets um, Frank Sinatra, and uh, Frank Sinatra introduces him to the other members of his entourage. And he says, um, you know, this is, uh, Sinatra says to Cary Grant, this is Joey Tomatoes. And Cary, <laughs> Cary Grant responds, Mr. Tomatoes, how do you do? <laughs> Can't you just see it? And then um, there was one story that Cary Grant was trying to tell this Sinatra entourage. And it involved some profanity. And Cary Grant kept apologizing before saying the profanity. And then uh, one uh, one of the guys in Sinatra's entourage, it might have been Joey Tomatoes, or it might have been Jilly, it might have been somebody else, says to somebody else, what the hell does he keep apologizing to us for? We're a bunch of gangsters. I've always found that very, uh, very fun. Hey, uh, so I have a list of 20 different possible quick stories that I'm going to bring to your attention now, unless anyone has their own Cary Grant story. And so if you have a Cary Grant story, call in 800-848-9222. And again, it's not a story involving Cary Grant. It's a story like the one that Mel Brooks told. But if no one does, I have 20 different stories, and I can't narrow it down. So I decided what we would actually do in studio is, is institute a wheel and spin a wheel. And I have all these topics these potential, it's not really a topic, potential quick stories listed on this wheel. And we're going to spin it a couple of times. And wherever this wheel of topics lands, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Because sometimes the best conversations are the random ones. So let us spin the wheel. Henry Kissinger and equi- and disequilibrium. 
fascinating interview with Henry Kissinger in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Uh, it's really interesting. In fact, I, I'm gonna. I think you need a subscription to the Wall Street Journal to read it, but it's worth reading. Uh, and you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Henry Kissinger, but there's no question he's a very, very intelligent guy. And uh, uh, one aspect of it that really hit home with me is the portion that deals with Ukraine. And the journal describes how Kissinger courted controversy earlier this year. He's got another book out this year. The guy at 99 years old has got to be the hardest working 99-year-old I ever encountered. Uh, Not that I've encountered him, but that I've ever observed. Kissinger courted controversy earlier this year by suggesting that incautious policies on the part of the U.S. and NATO may have touched off the crisis in Ukraine. He sees no choice but to take Putin's stated security concerns seriously and believes that it was a mistake for NATO to signal to Ukraine that it might eventually join the alliance. This is what Kissinger said. I thought that Poland, all the traditional Western countries that have been part of the Western Western history were logical members of NATO. But Ukraine, in his view, is a collection of territories once appended to Russia, which Russians see as their own, even though some Ukrainians do not. Stability would be better served by it acting as a buffer between Russia and the West. I was in favor of the full independence of Ukraine, but I thought its best role was something like Finland. He says, however, that the die has now been cast after the way Russia has behaved in Ukraine. Now I consider one way or the other, formally or not, Ukraine has to be treated in the aftermath of this as a member of NATO. Uh, Still, he foresees a settlement that preserves Russia's gains from its initial incursion in 2014 when it seized Crimea and portions of the Donbass region, though he does not have an answer to the question of how such a settlement would differ from the agreement that failed to stabilize the conflict eight years ago. So all the folks out there that love to call me Moscow Morano and take issue when I point out that maybe the United States and maybe NATO played some role in the present hostilities, well, even Henry Kissinger thinks that as well. Let us spin the wheel of subjects! Well, this is actually a bizarre story. Airline passenger fined nearly $2,000 for McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. Listen to this. An airline passenger who arrived in Australia from Indonesia was fined nearly $2,000 for transporting McDonald's breakfast sandwiches through an international airport. According to ABCnews.com, no affiliation with uh, WABC Radio in New York. The unidentified traveler landed in Darwin, Australia, after a flight from Bali, Indonesia, when he was stopped by a newly trained biosecurity detector dog named Zinta. You know if you've got a biosecurity detector dog named Zinta, some stuff is going down. 
when security checked through the passengers' baggage, they found two, not one, but two, egg and beef sausage McMuffins and a ham croissant, as well as travel-safe hotcakes. Now you think, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Australia has food policies in place to avoid introducing foot and mouth disease to the country. As a result of this undeclared food, the traveler received a fine of $1,846. And on top of that, his meal was destroyed after officials tested it for any potential foreign diseases. Uh, The Australian Minister for Agriculture was quoted as saying, this will be the most expensive McDonald's meal this passenger ever has. This fine is twice the cost of an airfare to Bali, but I have no sympathy for people who choose to disobey Australia's strict biosecurity measures and recent detections show you will be caught. Now, he's right, but this guy was probably warned a hundred times. I still feel bad for the guy. I do. I don't know about you, but uh, I still feel that's a shame. So the airport's biosecurity detector dog was funded as part of a multi-million dollar program developed by the Australian government to add more biosecurity monitoring to mail centers and airports, including specially trained dogs. All right, before we get to Sal Greco, let us spin the wheel of subjects one more time. Well, this is actually a similarly bizarre story that also happens to deal with with transportation and money. Uh, and I like this story. This story actually has a happy ending. Um, an Indian lawyer by the name of Tungnath Chaturvedi. Now, when we say Indian, we mean Indian. We don't mean Indian, meaning we don't mean American Indian or Native American or indigenous. We mean someone from India, as is the case with Tungnath Chaturvedi. He was overcharged 20 rupees, that's 25 cents about, for two train tickets that he bought. Now, it's a big deal, right? 25 cents in India? This was in 1999. Last week, after a 22-year court battle against the Northeastern Railway, which is a division of Indian Railways, you heard me correct, a 22-year court battle, Shadervedi was finally told he'd be getting his refund. Quote, I have attended more than 100 hearings in connection with this case. But you can't put a price on the energy and time I've lost fighting this case. So he visited a ticket clerk in 1999 to buy two train tickets from Mathura to Moradabad. Both in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. The tickets cost 35 rupees each, but when he gave 100 rupees to the clerk, Chaturvedi only received 10 rupees and change. BBC News reported that Chaturvedi told the clerk that he was overcharged by 20 rupees, but was refused a refund. Shortchanged and angry, he decided to sue the railways and the clerk in an Indian consumer court. The legal battle dragged on partly because the railways tried to move the case from a consumer court court to a railway tribunal, 
but we they used a 2021 Supreme Court ruling to prove that the matter could be heard in consumer court. He added that the delays were also the result of judges being on vacation or other types of leave. This guy made more than 100 court appearances between 1999 and 2022. His family urged him several times to give it up, describing the decades-long fight as a waste of time. Nevertheless, he persisted. It's not the money that matters. This was always about a fight for justice and a fight against corruption. But the after the epic legal battle, the railways were last week ordered to give him a refund. And he will receive 20 rupees at 12% interest per year. And if the money is not paid within 30 days, the interest rate, rate will be raised to 15% per year. The railways must also pay him a fine of 15,000 rupees, which is $188. Uh, Chaturvedi told BBC News that he hopes the case would inspire others not to give up when the fight looks tough. You know, I give this guy credit, and I think this is a nice story. That's why I wanted to talk about it, and I'm glad the wheel landed on it. And, but there is a value to your time. You could do anything... It's like my wife is always urging me not to take my cans and bottles to the grocer and spend hours getting $5 in recyclables because there's a value to your time. Think about the time over the course of the last 22 years that this guy spent fighting this case. I guarantee you if I was in this guy's shoes, my wife would have said, just let it go. Just let it go. It's 25 cents. What do you care? You don't need the money. Let it go. And I would say it's about principle. She said, well, I don't want to hear. You don't have time to do this or do that. So I give this guy credit. He's doing the kind of thing that I would like to be doing. But I, I do wonder if that was the right move. Um, it's, I mean, it's great that he's doing it. I just don't know if it would be the right move for me because, look, let's face it. There are a lot of other, other demands of your time. All right, speaking of demands of your time, Sal Greco, no longer a police officer, fired by the NYPD. He joins us for his first interview, a worldwide exclusive straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Johnson, this is a Matt Blaze selection. Quite a good one, I must say. Hey, uh, we're going to try and go get through your mail a little bit uh, a little bit later in the show. They changed the mail pickup schedule, or the normal person that picks up the mail didn't have a chance to do it today. 
So uh, we don't have the snail mail, so we're going to go just strictly with email probably. So if you want to email me, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I am thrilled for this uh, opportunity to talk with my friend Sal Greco, someone who uh, I have known for several years and have been eager to talk to for the last two years on the radio because his case to me is an absolute travesty, irrespective of uh, where you live or where you fall on the political spectrum. If the injustice that was done to him, in my view, I'm just speaking for myself here, is allowed to stand, it sets a very poor precedent for free speech in this country, freedom of association in this country, and the future of law enforcement all over the country. And it's really, um, it just is really kind of a crummy case. We're going to tell you more about it. I'm very, very pleased to be joined in studio by Sal Greco, recently fired NYPD officer and a close friend of uh, controversial political advisor, Roger Stone. Hello, Sal. Good to be here, Frank. It's great to uh, it's great to see you. I wish we were uh, here talking about circumstances other than your firing. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I remember coming by this building when uh, I actually was working. So yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. Now, how long were you a police officer for? A little over fourteen years. And where did you? Where were some of the places that you served in your time as a cop? I worked in um, Brooklyn South. Worked in uh, Manhattan. I covered Queens and the Bronx. Uh, I really didn't go to Staten Island. I was never there. So, you, uh, but so you served in a lot of different places all over the city. Correct. Some some rough neighborhoods some, as well. Some uh, under you know undesirable places, we'll say. Yeah, and um, never really a history of uh, you getting in trouble or being a troublesome cop or anything like that. No, actually, uh, I have uh, I won. Uh, well, I have fifty four medals. Under my belt, I've uh, have three hundred and twenty something arrests, over three hundred twenty uh, arrests. Uh, I was always one of the top guys in DWI arrests during my career, so it's not like. And I've uh, also uh, been a part of at least close to a thousand arrests. I've been in multiple cases in uh, court, you know. So it wasn't like I was uh, somebody who just sat around and. You know, yeah, you, read about, you read about these cops from time to time that uh, have all these disciplinary actions or who are wrongfully arresting people all the time, all these troublesome cops, yep. a history of uh, police brutality and CCRB complaints. You had nothing like that. Uh, the only CCRB I ever got was exonerated on. Okay. So. Um, all right. So a lot of what's happened to you seems to have to do with your relationship with Roger Stone. Roger Stone, obviously a longtime associate and former advisor to uh, Donald Trump, the former president. How did you get to know Roger Stone? Uh, I actually, Roger, Roger and I, we, uh, he, he contacted me off of Instagram because I was his friend and I was liking his pictures because uh, his case, well, he didn't have a case yet, but, the, you know, the, the media was portraying him uh, a certain way and it was it was crazy at that time because they were saying you know uh, President Trump and his Russian collusion and you know Roger Stone and WikiLeaks and all, all this stuff and it was just a, a drumbeat and the vitriol of hatred that was associated with Roger and what they post on his pictures it was just 
otherworldly to me. So I, you know, I, I, I took it up and saying, I don't think this is right. I mean, he's, he, you know, he, he seems like a good guy. And then when I, I finally got to know him and you, you know how Roger is, he's a great guy. So you guys met one another through social media. Correct. And then you guys became friends. Yes. I became very close friends also with his family. I know Nidia, Nidia very well. Nidia is his wife, for people that don't know. Uh, Audrey, his daughter, and Scott, who's his son. And Scott is also a police officer in Broward County. So you just got to know Roger really over the last few years. Correct. Yeah. And um, did you um, – you were just regular friends. You didn't have a professional relationship or, as was described in uh, several newspapers, you weren't his bodyguard. I have never been anybody's bodyguard, nor anybody's security. Now, uh, so much of what happened in your case seems to have to do with January 6th. Now, uh, wherever people fall on the political spectrum, I think everyone acknowledges there was some wrongdoing that happened on January 6th. You have one side that calls it an insurrection. You have another side that calls it a riot. But clearly you had some people in the Capitol that didn't belong there, whether that's an insurrection or whether the, or whether that's a riot. Were you one of those people? Were you storming the Capitol on January 6th? Uh, Frank, I have probably not been anywhere within a 1,000 yards ever in my lifetime of that building. So what were you doing on January 6th? On on January 5th, actually, I uh, was with Roger. We were He, he had a couple of uh, events that he was um, speaking at. Uh, I was there as his friend. To support Roger, I believe the people that were there were there because they just wanted their voice heard because they were looking to have a, a delay of uh, ten days to cert to certify elections so that they could hear about uh, whatever it was the irregularities or whatever the issue was with the uh, the election. I was there to support uh, Roger. Uh, into the to the next day, uh, he was I guess he was going to speak at the ellipse. Uh, at, cer- at a certain point, but there was – it never occurred. I, I couldn't even get my own ticket that I was supposed – the tickets for me and for him and to get into the, the ellipse. It was just so many people there that you didn't know whether it was a VIP entrance. It was very chaotic, to, to say the least. So where were you on the 6th? We, we we stepped out. The infamous video that you keep seeing about uh, ABC News, it, you know, that was, it, we, we stepped out for five, was it, five minutes. We actually got kicked out of the hotel because you weren't allowed in the lobby unless you had, um, it was like a COVID restriction or something. Either you went to your room or you stayed outside. So we came outside to get a, a, a breath of fresh air, and then we went Basically, back up to the room, and then that was it. And we were watching the speech in the room. So you stayed in your hotel room, and then it, you went home. Correct. So um, you were not Roger's bodyguard, and he, uh, you weren't didn't get paid anything by Roger. The only instances of any money ever being transferred between the Stone family and Sal Greco, there was two instances where I went to Florida I uh, I was there during the summer, I think a couple of months uh, prior to this. So it was probably June or July, and I went there. I I had uh, rented out a, a hotel room, so Nidia reimbursed me. Says I wanted I wanted you to be here with the family because it was right after I believe he got commuted the sentence. 
And then the second time later on, it was October or something, the car, the family car broke down. So I rented a vehicle and then once again, media reimbursed me for the vehicle because nobody had the car. That's the only money transfer ever has been. So when did, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Sal Greco. If you want to learn more about this case or donate uh, to his legal defense fund uh, because his legal bills are substantial, you can go to the website, helpthisnycomp.com. That's helpthisnycomp.com. And I believe you can even purchase a Sal Greco Did Nothing Wrong T-shirt. If you can't purchase it, you could at least see an image of it. That's helpthisnycomp.com. When did your problems with the police department begin as a result of your association with Roger Stone, your association, uh, your attendance in D.C. on January 6th, all this stuff? When did the problems begin? Uh, I believe we caught wind almost immediately one or two days after uh, one of my uh, former co-workers uh, told me that there uh, there was, you know, they there's a list of people or something that was going on in some kind of chat room somewhere. And it mentioned me and there were pictures of me. They're all pictures of me on other people's Instagram. It's everything prior to this day because January 6th, obviously we were never at the Capitol. I have, I don't know anything about that. So uh, that I caught wind of this and then, the, the funny part, well, it's not even funny. The sad part is the first day of my interrogation was actually January 25th, which, if you remember, is the actual anniversary of when CNN uh, was at Roger's house originally. In, in, uh, oh, that's wild. I, the I, Gestapo I raid on that. the house. Yeah. I had forgotten that. So uh, the department comes to you and says what, essentially? Well, essentially they wanted to learn about the, you know, how you did I? How did I meet Roger? What's your relationship with him? Obviously, there were a lot of questions about the whole January sixth uh, things. About obviously, this must be the very first or a, maybe a unique time where the President of the United States was invoked in this interrogation. They were asking me about. Him and the speech and the, the ellipse. Many times I've been asked about the president. So, uh, so uh, one of the things that the so you go through this whole, which is amazing to me, an NYPD departmental trial, and one of the things that they accuse you of is associating with felons, which you're not supposed to do, I guess, as a police officer. Now, Roger Stone, who was pre, uh, who was pardoned by President Trump for his federal crime. He's a felon. And uh, Kristen Davis, who's part of Roger's inner circle, she has a felony conviction as well. Now, uh, before we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of what happened in your case, uh, look, you're a cop. You're a law enforcement official. You know you're not supposed to hang around with, with felons. Why are you hanging around with folks like Roger Stone and Kristen Davis? Well, the the rule of uh, associating with convicted felons is a little bit of a record or, you know, for, but, well, this is what we'll, we'll break this down to because, you know, so I'm being accused that I violated the, the, the rule of uh, associating with a known felon. Okay. Roger Stone was saying he's, a, he's a, he, Roger is a, is a known felon, even though he's pardoned Kristen, or we'll say Kristen Davis also. 
Your problem with this is under equal protection law here. There's an equal protection law. Your mayor, Eric Adams, who spent 22 years in the New York City Police Department, as a, I believe, a lieutenant or a police captain, he admittingly, in his book and his numerous articles, was security and a bodyguard for Mike Tyson and Louis Farrakhan, who was also a convicted felon. He was investigated, but he was never charged, nor was he fired for this event. So here you are, six years shy of 20 years, go on trial and fired ultimately after this trial for, among other things, associating with felons. And you're saying Mayor Adams not only uh, worked as security for Mike Tyson, but associated with other felons like Louis Farrakhan, and he never got a departmental trial. He never got fired. That is correct. And why do you think that is? Why do you think they picked to, they chose to pick on Sal Greco, but 25, 30 years ago they didn't choose to pick on Eric Adams? Well, I believe this is uh, glaringly obvious. It's because, number one, I am friends with Roger Stone, and number two, my support for President Trump. So you think you were singled out because of your your politics? Correct. So what's next for you? It was reported um, in uh, several publications that uh, you're going to be filing a lawsuit. What's happening with that? Correct. Uh, Right now I'm in the process of uh, filing a a $25 million lawsuit that will be equal protection lawsuit where obviously we'll we'll be calling – Mayor Eric Adams, not in his role as mayor, but as a a civilian, as a former member of the police department, to ask why is it that Eric Adams was consorting with known felons as a a New York City cop? But Sal Greco, you're saying, is uh, associating with uh, uh, convicted felons uh, and you're firing uh, Sal Greco. You will also, there were other issues like the judge and the administrative uh, judge in this trial who was illicitly constituted because in the NYPD you have to be a deputy commissioner of trials. He is actually a deputy counsel to the NYPD. Therefore, it's in violation of uh, New York City code, administrative code, and New York State code in which he's actually in right now, he's being sued by multiple uh, police officers that also have been uh, fired previously under his uh, trial. There's also an issue with subpoenas because very obviously they subpoenaed my phone records, okay, which is uh, a whole nother issue because, as you all know, this is a administrative trial, allegedly, and uh, criminal association, you can't just subpoena somebody's records. So they wrote narcotics, because you can't just write criminal association because Verizon or whatever company, Facebook, they will not just hand over records. They have to believe that it's a criminal right. action. So they brought narcotics. And then during the trial, when uh, you know the sergeant there and the, and the prosecutor and they all asked, the, uh, the, uh, they were asked this question, uh, why, you know, why is there narcotics? Uh, the answer was, Sal Greco, we never, we never suspected Sal Greco of doing narcotics. Oh, uh, well, did you at least dole test him for cause? And uh, for the folks out there, it would be a random drug, well, a drug test. Uh, no. 
But that didn't stop them from writing narcotics. So they, what you're saying is the department got your phone records from Verizon on the basis that there was some suspicion that you were involved in or doing drugs when the department obviously knew you weren't involved in or doing drugs because they didn't even test you for it or that, really accuse you of it or anything like that. That That is correct, and that is a, 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 a separate issue on top of the well, equal protection uh, part of this with uh, the whole convicted so, felon. Uh, the, the lawsuit hasn't been filed yet, right? No. And what do you think the timetable is here? I believe you have, uh, uh, it should be anywhere, I think, between 60 and 90 days. And uh, there's other issues like uh, I'll, I received a letter. This is something that I don't know if I uh, even told you about. Uh, I received uh, my firing was obviously August. Well, this is funny. August 12th, which was at the same time I got the phone call. They were raiding Mar-a-Lago. That's just, you know. And uh, the firing, the official letter from the police commissioner actually said August 8th, which was four days prior. Or in August 8th was the day I got the, and August 4th is the day I was technically fired by the police commissioner as I received the uh, letter. The so problem you, was I worked. <laughs> so you worked four days after you were fired. Yes, I worked two days in uniform. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be paid for this. And on top of it, I was working in uniform with a firearm at, sitting at a, at a desk. Yeah, you'd think if somebody's such a danger to the department that they need to be fired so quickly that we'd make sure they're not running around with a gun and a uniform after they're fired. And here's also another thing, Frank. Uh, I This entire 19-month ordeal. I was never modified or suspended, wow. no, nor was I in my entire career. What? Um, how do you feel about this whole situation, seeing everything that's uh, gone on over the last uh, 19 months? I know uh, on a personal level you, you've had a tough time over the last year and a half or so. And uh, how do you feel now that at least this portion of your professional life is over? Well, I mean, I spent... 14 years of my life I put into this and I, I tried to excel at this job. And I believe that I, I did. And, you know, listen, sometimes I might've rubbed people the wrong way or they took things uh, a certain way. Uh, like anything else, you know, it, it happens when you, you try to be, you know, the best at what you do, but you know, uh, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for, uh, the, uh, the, the court proceedings that we're going to have here, you know, taking this the, the, the lawsuit to the court, and um, uh, we'll see what the what the future hold. I mean, you know, uh, there's many different avenues of things I could I could possibly get involved in. Obviously, you know, politics is one of the first things that come up is I'm being politically persecuted for my politics. So uh, that could be an avenue I could take. Or uh, so you don't know what you're going to do next necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm I'm thinking it through, you know. I could Florida seems like a, a great destination. Well, they want a lot of New York cops down there, supposedly. Oh, uh, I don't know if I, was, I don't know if I could be in law. I, I don't know if I could even be in law enforcement after this. I mean, I was technically smeared for 19 months, uh, hmm. not even uh, by the uh, by the NYPD, but just uh, regular. Which is also another situation where I will be. Uh, 
these people that were smearing me, whether, you know, uh, certain publications that wrote uh, uh, falsehoods, uh, I am looking into that because uh, I believe that should be addressed. Mm. Uh, Sal Greco, wishing you the best of luck. Uh, I hate to see what you've been going through for the last couple of years. Uh, I, uh, I think it sets a very, very poor precedent for not only the NYPD, for, but for police departments around the country. Good luck. Uh, thank you very much. All right. And uh, stay in touch. Keep us posted. We'll, we'll be do. watching this lawsuit. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could do so at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. It's... Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. from the film King Creole. Uh, I like crawfish. Not only the song, but the uh, the seafood. I am a seafood fanatic. All right, 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything we've uh, we've covered thus far. And uh, coming up next hour, we'll uh, delve into some other exciting things. Uh, no more guests today, so we'll have plenty of time for calls and hopefully the mail as well. If you want to send me some written correspondence, you could certainly do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me begin with JR in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay, good. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> toward the tail end of that uh, interview you just had with, with, you, with your friend Sal, he said, oh, you know, you rub some people the wrong way, these things are going to happen. So I uh, <clears throat> know without question that he, he has the knack of rubbing entire precincts the wrong way. R- rubbing uh, what? He, entire precincts, you said? That's correct. Yeah, he, uh, he was, I, can, I can bet with no uncertainty that he was probably running his mouth in the precinct telling tales at a school about uh, his uh, relationship with Rodney Stone, probably a relationship with the president, whether it's factual or not. He's had a big mouth since the day he got on the police department. And he's well, how uh, do you know? probably because I, I worked with him when he was in Brooklyn South. All right. Well, um, I mean, do you think it was appropriate that he was that he was fired in the manner that he was? I think there's a lot that's being left out. 
Like I said, I don't doubt. Like, well, like, like what? Maybe he doesn't deserve to be fired. Well, what do you think, for instance, is being left out? Um, I would imagine that things that he had said to other people, other cops. Like I said, he's got a big mouth. Right, no, you've you've said that now a couple of times. I, I'm just, but being a big, get it, having a big mouth is not, you know, as far as I'm concerned, cause for being fired after 14 years. No, on the I'm department. not saying. What I'm saying is, I'm sure that he had said his involvement with Roger Stone and or the president and or other members of this possible or not uh, felonious group that he that he kept ties with, I'm sure he had no problem telling everybody in the precinct or even fabricating his own involvement with these people as well is probably what ultimately is getting him in this trouble. Yeah. I I mean, look, there's no way I can um, respond to a rumor that there's no that there's no evidence that you're presenting to back up. But uh, I will say I still think that you have the double standard issue on the part of Eric Adams. I don't see why uh, Eric Adams uh, should be okay with uh, himself working as a security guard for convicted felon Mike Tyson and associating with. Yeah. Yes. Police Commissioner. Eric Adams. Yes. But no, but so Eric Adams ultimately fired him or the police department fired him. Well, the police commissioner that Eric Adams appointed fired him. Okay, so do you think he had to clear it with Eric Adams? She. Uh but uh I mean She, I'm sorry. Do you think the commissioner had to clear it I, with I, Eric I, Adams? I, and if so, I, don't forget I, this was prior to her taking the commissioner's role as well. Well, no, it was last week. No, I understand that, but everything started. How how long how long ago did the investigation start? Yeah, well, uh, so uh, again, it was about uh, January of 2021. So, but I guess the point is, so what? I mean, why? It's it, I think Sal's case about selective persecution and prosecution still holds water. The fact that we are picking and choosing who we're okay with cops associating with and who we're not. It does look to me like he was singled out for selective treatment. I, I, I assure you, he's not alone. Well, who else? When, when it comes to the when it comes to felonia, people are fired often for their roles uh, of associating with felons, and the term association with felons is not like, oh, uh, that guy has a felony, and we use the same mechanic or we use the same barber. Mm. Yeah, it, you, know, it, you understand I, what I mean? It's not like, oh, there's a loose association. It's not a gray area. Look, you're running around and you're yeah, more you know, it, than... it, it sounds it sounds to me, Jr. Like you may have crossed paths or even worked with Sal. You know, at some point over the over the over the years, or maybe you worked with somebody that worked with Sal, and you had a, a negative taste in your mouth uh, about him. Maybe rightly so. But uh, it's just it's it, and it sounds like you're kind of trying to um, say, uh, hey, you know, that that guy is not a good guy. You you shouldn't be sympathetic with him. Whereas I, I think the crux of his case really is still just as much of an injustice, even if the, the rumors that you're putting out there are true. But I appreciate the call and I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you were able to share that. Gla- uh, well, We'll continue with your calls in a moment. Um, Hey, speaking of this situation, if you had to pick, 
the biggest mistake you've ever made, what is it? Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno as i mentioned in our first hour i am a big fan of uh, richard bay's podcast i watch just about every week and not the most recent edition but the previous edition that i watched when i was in uh, cape may new jersey he did a whole segment about admitting mistakes now i didn't agree necessarily with all the things that richard admitted to or all the mistakes that he chose to profile but i did agree with the gist of what he was saying about the importance of admitting mistakes especially when it comes to leadership this week it marks a year since the united states withdrew from afghanistan i think everyone would acknowledge that President Biden, whether you're a supporter of President Biden or a detractor of President Biden, President Biden did not handle the war, the withdrawal from the Afghanistan war well. I, I don't think there's anybody that would say, yes, this was exactly how the withdrawal was supposed to go. And I remember some folks re- writing to me at the time, and it might have even been published in a couple of columns, that uh, folks that said Biden should have done at that time, which he didn't ultimately do, he should have done at that time what John F. Kennedy did after the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. After the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion, John F. Kennedy went on television and essentially publicly admitted his mistake and threw himself on the mercy of the public, and they forgave him. Ultimately, obviously, history took a whole bunch of other turns, and you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had a lot of other situations, and then ultimately his assassination. But it did turn out to be an effective strategy. So I thought it might be interesting to ask you to tell me what your greatest mistake was. And it could be something that you've admitted publicly before, or it could be something that you're admitting now for the first time. But I think that's one of the things that we've started to discourage in society. There's so much pressure to never be wrong or to try to evade blame when something goes wrong that more often than not, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're in school, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're in politics, the temptation now so often is to provide excuses, to pass the buck, to cast blame. And instead of saying the buck stops with me and I'm responsible and I made a mistake and here's why. Tell me an example of a mistake that you've made. Could have been in the workplace, could have been in a relationship, could have been elsewhere. 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Politically, I think one of the best mistakes uh, ever admitted to was in 1969 when John Lindsay was running for re-election. Now, picture what was going on in 1969. There was a lot of tumult, and John Lindsay had recently lost the Republican primary. He was running for re-election, lost his own party's primary, was now running for re-election in the general election as a third-party candidate. Something that was it was and is still very difficult to accomplish. And John Lindsay begins this commercial, which became pretty famous, by admitting to some pretty significant mistakes. Because remember, that first term was filled with setback after setback. And John Lindsay didn't run away from it. Well, not directly. This is what he did. I guessed wrong on the weather before the city's biggest snowfall last winter, and that was a mistake. But I put 6,000 more cops on the streets, and that was no mistake. The school strike went on too long, and we all made some mistakes. But I brought 225,000 new jobs to this town, and that was no mistake. And I fought for three years to put a fourth police platoon on the streets, and that was no mistake. I reduced the deadliest gas in the air by 50%, and I forced the landlords to roll back unfair rents. And we did not have a Detroit, a Watts, or a Newark in this city. And those were no mistakes. The things that go wrong are what make this the second toughest job in America. But the things that go right are what make me want it. I tell you, say what you want about John Lindsay. The guy was smooth. You know, it's interesting. There was a PBS documentary about 12 or 13 years ago, about 12 years ago. It was called Fun City Revisited. You might still be able to find it online. And there's all sorts of great people that they interviewed in this documentary, including a lot of people that are no longer with us. Folks like Ed Koch, folks like Jimmy Breslin. And uh, a lot of other interesting people. But one of the people that they interviewed for that documentary was Rudy Giuliani, who obviously Rudy Giuliani is very much in the news today because of this uh, Georgia grand jury situation. But what Rudy Giuliani said, he was very kind to John Lindsay, even though John Lindsay didn't support him for me. One of the things that Giuliani said was that Lindsay, there was so many parallels between John F. Kennedy on a national level and John Lindsay on a local level. In some respects, it's not really surprising that John Lindsay, who I think sort of fancied himself the New York version of John F. Kennedy, he took a page from the Kennedy playbook and admitted his mistake. I'd be curious, what what mistake have you made? And what lesson did you learn from it? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Oprah Winfrey, in a commencement speech to the 2008 graduates of Stanford, told the story of a scandal that rocked her school for girls in South Africa. She had founded a school for girls in that year, in 2007, and that year a dorm matron was accused of sexual abuse of students. Now, Oprah took action by hiring investigators, recruiting a trauma specialist for the students. She personally traveled to South Africa to resolve the crisis. And she said that the lesson she learned was she understood how the mistakes that she had made 
because she'd been paying attention to all the wrong things. She'd built that school from the outside in, and what really mattered was the inside out. Now, I don't even know what that means. That sounds like a lot of kind of gobbledygook, to be honest. But that was Oprah's mistake that she admitted to, allowing a dorm matron who uh, sexually abused these girls. Mark Zuckerberg has admitted a whole bunch of mistakes with things that have gone wrong at Facebook, including the fact that 87 million profiles were accessed by the political firm Cambridge Analytica. What do you have? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I spent a lot of time since watching that Richard Bay podcast trying to think of what mistakes I've made. And a lot of them are, you know, when I was in the leadership of various political parties over the years, one of the common mistakes that you make is you back the wrong candidate. You endorse X candidate instead of Y candidate. And there are so many elections where I wish that I had backed a different candidate. But is that a mistake or do you make the best decision you can with the information that's before you? I think it's probably the latter. Um, Most of the – and I I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Almost all of the mistakes, the, the things that I regret, the things that I wish I could take back are when I'm having an argument with someone, mostly uh, a loved one, a uh, family member, a uh, girlfriend, a wife, never at the same time, by the way, that I, and you say something mean that you wish you didn't say, right? That's, those are a lot of the mistakes that I wish that I had never, had never done. And then I thought to myself, I kind of went back and forth with my uh, time in college because I enjoyed my college experience a great deal, but I there was I didn't go to a lot of the classes, and I didn't when I did go to the classes I didn't go to a lot I didn't do a lot of the readings, at least not as many as I should have, and then I started to list that one as a mistake. Well, think of how much smarter I'd be if I was more diligent in attending class or doing the readings. But then I realized it wasn't as if I was sitting around goofing off, I was doing other things. I was working in radio, I was working in politics, I was doing things that were contributing to my education or the network of people that I was building around me that that would then contribute to a professional career. So I didn't really, I I don't view it as a mistake. So uh, be curious what you have. If you were to pick something, professionally, personally, politically, recreationally, whatever the case may be, that's an example of a mistake you've made. What, what what was it? What lesson have you learned from it? 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, the, the biggest mistake I ever made uh, was not realizing while my parents were still alive that they had always been my best friend. It was until they were gone that I realized no one ever looked after me as more than them, gave me the best advice more than them. And I, and I always regretted it. I, I didn't take their advice and let them know that I understood they were my best friend. But what specifically would you have done uh, differently had had you come to that realization earlier? Many things in my life. <clears throat> Many things in my life. Well, first of all, I would have been more appreciative of what they did. You know, I mean, we don't appreciate anything, basically, until it's gone. And I always wished that I had let them know, you know, I, I, I acknowledge You've always been my best friend, all that. It was always, you know, it was always mother-father relationship. 
and they were my best friend. I always thought my friends were my friends, but no, they were. All right. Well, that's a good one, Rick. Thank you. Um, and now that Rick is gone, I really didn't appreciate him as much as I should have while he was on the phone. 800-848-9222. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made? A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. What do you think? What do you have? 800-848-9222. Larry, I know you wanted to call on another matter. Go ahead. Be heard. Well, I'll tell you, just as long as you're on this subject, I'll I'll be appropriate, subject appropriate. You know, uh, the biggest mistake I ever made, it may be too general, but is that I chose to be, I didn't choose, but I I became a horizontal person. I evolved into a horizontal person as opposed to a vertical person. Now, I don't know if you're aware of the distinction, but, uh, you know, a vertical person is somebody who doesn't get preoccupied and stuck on things and then st- and start to analyze, overanalyze things. They go right to the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, along with that comes um, with, uh, with reading. I wish I, have, I wish I had realized early in life that, that real power is knowledge. And I would have read my ass off, you know, and that goes also with being a vertical person, not getting, you know, caught up in, in, in problems and overanalyzing, becoming, you know, forfeiting wisdom for knowledge. You know, wisdom comes anyway, but knowledge is real power. All right. Well, I mean, you could still you could do some catching up significantly on your reading now. Right, Larry? Yeah, like, you know, Woody Allen once said that he had to read a book. He didn't have anything to talk about on a date, so he had to read a book, some joke like that. You, you, I can search for you can catch up, but, you know, but, you know when, you get, when you get into certain behavior patterns and everything, uh, it's hard to reverse them, you know, at a certain age. All right. Well, uh, fair enough, uh, Larry. Thank you for your candor. 800-848-9222. Evelyn is in New Jersey. Hello, Evelyn. Hi, hi, Frank. How are you? Trip to Greece. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sorry? <laughs> you trip to Greece. I knew Curtis oh, oh, was oh, funny. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I he's knew. a character. Anybody that sure. knows you knows which That's one you were. I love Kate May, but Frank, one of my many big mistakes in life was selling my 1971 Candy Apple Red Mustang Mach 1. And why was it a mistake? Because you could have gotten a greater price for it or because you really enjoyed it? Why did you find that to be a mistake? I loved it, Frank. I loved it. It was garage kept. It turned heads. It was, uh, it was, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous car. But it came to a point where the car was really possessing me instead of me possessing the car because people were following me around in parking lots in Jersey City waiting for me to get out to steal it. It was such an awesome-looking car that I just wish I still had it. That That's all I can say. All right, and well, it was garage-kept and everything. Well, uh, so, uh, what, so uh, what is that going to cause you to do differently in the future with respect to future automobiles? Um, think twice, but there'll never be another car like that one unless they start making the real muscle cars again. If I hit the lottery, I'll buy a 67 GTO Judge. All right. Hey, uh, well, wishing you luck, yeah, Evelyn. Think twice. Abs- okay. Thank That's you, good. I like it. Yeah, think twice. 800-848-9222. You know, for a while, you know, I had an opportunity 13 years ago, 12 years ago, to stay at uh, WABC in New York 
in uh, in an administrative role. I forget what they wanted me to do, be the assistant program director or something along those lines. And I really loved WABC. It was the station I was grew up listening to. And Curtis had really put a lot of um, pressure on me to go to another radio station and go with him there as he launched a new show there. And uh, for a while, I thought that I had made a mistake in making that transition. But if you think about it through the prism of hindsight, who knows if I would have stayed at WABC, if I would have ever had the opportunity to do my own show when I did. And uh, I think maybe going to that other radio station gave me an opportunity to do a lot of other things that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do had I remained at WABC. So sometimes things that you think are a mistake if you look at it through the through 2020 hindsight, you realize that maybe it wasn't. 800-848-9222. Adrian in Manhattan, how about you? Okay, this was a total mistake. Not the marriage, but how I went about this marriage. <laughs> 23 mm-hmm. years. So the marriage is a keeper, as far as I know so far. 23 years strong. But so you're, you're married The way, I did, you're married it, the way I did it was a, I, I really regret. We... My uh, husband had been married to my uh, first cousin. They had been divorced for five years, and everyone, you know, all got on. They're in another state, got got along great, and he was like a, a brother to me, like a, really like a, a best friend. And and but I was, you know, in New York City, and I never really, you know, he's a cute guy and all, but I mean, I never thought of him in that way. So he. Uh, you know, made it clear that you can't can't get me out of New York City. He knew that. So one day he says, you know, if I ever considered moving to New York City, would you ever consider marrying me? And I thought, sure, but I didn't think he'd ever do it. Well, next thing I know, he does it. So uh, at the time, my mother was very sick, and I just thought, you know, New York City is very different. from He's from Boston, from Boston, and there's a chance he's going to hate it here. But I'm not leave. I, I just couldn't leave, and I hadn't really dated him. Like it seems odd to marry someone I knew him so well, but had never dated him. I was dating two other people actually, like weeks before my my. You know, he came here, so uh, we did it without telling anyone because I wasn't going to live with a guy unless you know the ring on the finger. So we went to City Hall. Moved to an apartment, again, Upper West Side, a few blocks from, I used to rent, I used to have on the Upper West Side, old New York, you could rent those uh, furnished rooms. You know, I used to have to go up the stairs, share a bathroom with a couple of old men, you know, it was like, uh, so then we, we, uh, he moves here, we moved to, we have to get a real apartment, and I could move my phone number back then, a landline, my beloved landline, so family and relatives that were always calling me thinking, not realizing that I'm in a different home and not realizing that I'm married. And I didn't want to say anything for about six months. I figured that's a good amount of time because my mother was sick. I, she, I knew she'd be happy. She liked him. But I thought if it's not a keeper, I don't want to get her all excited that she's happy and then not happy if it doesn't work out. And I, you know, there's no divorce in the family. And I just, I, you know, I didn't want to. So luckily it worked out until we told people, you know, six at the six-month mark, I said, okay, we're going to announce this. And my mother, of course, thrilled. It took, like, 
weeks for her to believe it. She didn't believe it. I had to send her the, she thought I was kidding or trying to make her feel good before she was really ill at the time. And, uh, but she was thrilled. The rest of the family, oh my God, on, on my, uh, uh, my, it was a nightmare. It took years of chin to dirt groveling to get back in everyone's good graces. They were pissed off there was no wedding. They were pissed off that uh, they thought that we were, I don't know, it just was a mistake how so, I went about it. But you're still married uh, to your former first cousin-in-law. Yeah, thank God, because after creating all that hell for people, I mean, I had no idea. His ex-wife, you know, she was like a sister to me. They, they got along great. They were divorced for five years. But, oh, my God, what the rage. I mean, it was frosty. So, I was banned what, from what, all kind of family events. She, they tried to make my life miserable. So, my Adrian, mother-in-law. Adrian, if you could do it differently, what would you do differently exactly about the I handling of your I courtship? Front said, "Hey, yeah. listen, you know he's proposed. I, I, I you know, I, I really never wanted to hurt anyone. My only focus at the time was in case he hates New York. You know, to marry somebody you haven't really dated is, is an odd thing. <laughs> it's odd, but we hung out all the time. We talked all the time. But you know, he's good looking. You know, to me, he was very attractive. And but." But I and then he already had kids, so which was a big plus for me because I never wanted kids. So I thought, and it's great. Like I don't <laughs> mind helping to support. They're my cousins technically. So, uh, but, oh my God, it was a, a nightmare. And then my mother-in-law got all was giving me a hard time. That's and, something, Adrian. I, I I like it. So uh, you are you a you like it? Yeah, I, yeah. I love it. I, I think you're so that's pretty cool. You're a step parent to your. First cousins once removed. I love it. That's great. Adrian, thanks for sharing that. That's a great story. What is your biggest mistake? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Baina Patrice is in Brooklyn. Hello. Hi, Frank. Thanks Hi. for taking the call. Sure. I, I would have planned and followed up with more date days, nights, and vacations with my husband. Before he passed, he said, uh, Frank, he said I was a good mother uh, with, with our children. Uh, but um, in terms of the mistake, uh, you know, I've always been somewhat imaginative as a scientist. Uh, but um, I just wish, you know, I had, um, we, I could have planned so that we could have more fun as um, husband and wife, you know. Okay, so uh, it, was, it was mostly a scheduling error. You wish you would prioritize different different activities yes. when your husband was still alive. Yeah, yeah, and and Frank, uh, congratulations uh, on 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 your marriage and uh, being a new father. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know what I will say? Uh, I've noticed is a surprising advantage of having a an eight-and-a-half-month-old child who, by the way, has now – he's had these two teeth on the bottom, on the front front two teeth in the bottom for a little while now. Now he's getting these two front teeth in the top that are coming in. He's looking kind of you know, like a like a squirrel or something. He's got two front teeth uh, on top and that are coming in, and then he's already got two f- bottom teeth in the front. They're like razors. They're so sharp. But – uh, we're, we're, I mean, we got a, we just got him a toothbrush. We got him some tooth polish, so we we have to brush these teeth on a regular basis now. But here is something interesting. Now, I hate, for the most part, 
talking on the phone. Cannot stand it. When that phone rings, I almost get a chill. Um, Not on the radio, but in real life. Because to me, when that phone rings, no one ever calls to see how you're doing. Or even if they do, that's time that you're then spending on the phone call instead of doing what you need to do. Um, But more often than not, a phone call, in my case, it's just somebody that needs you to do something for them. More often than not, it's somebody that wants something. And so um, every time the phone rings, it it just, it, it, it annoys me, quite frankly. And I've noticed something interesting recently. My son, you know, whenever I'm holding him, he makes a noise. Sometimes he cries. More often than not, though, he shrieks or makes unusual sounds like gack. This is him yelling. So that's a pretty good approximation of the sounds that he makes on a regular basis. So here's what I've noticed. When I'm on the phone, if I've got him making these sounds next to me on the phone, the person I'm on the phone with is much more understanding about me getting off the phone. So he'll be shrieking, and I'll say, oh, sorry, Senator, you know, um, yeah, I, I got the little guy. He needs my attention. And, and he or she will say, oh, okay, you know, I hear him. Go ahead, do your thing. It is great at getting off the phone. So now I, I have started to coach Carmine when he sees me on the phone. I start saying, make noise, make noise. And so far he's been pretty good. We're making a pretty good team. I'm getting out of these phone conversations quicker and quicker. So kids, Johnny on the spot. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Here's one conversation I'm not looking to get out of. It's Glenn in Westchester. Hello, Glenn. Hey, how are you, Frank? Uh, this is Glenn from Cortland Manor in Westchester. Um, this is going back a couple of topics, a couple of shorties. Uh, you had mentioned something about meeting someone and it becomes annoying sure. or a funny little story. Anyway, um, this is 50 years ago. I'm seven. I'm 69. I was 17 at the time with a friend of mine. We went in West Hampton, and we went into a deli and ordered rice pudding. And behind me, I hear, um, and this is not a great impersonation, but um, the last hurrah in a young man's life, rice pudding. <laughs> and I turn around, and it's a very tall man, Howard Cosell, and he, he said... If I ate roast rice pudding, my ass would be so fat, my wife would kick me out of the house. <laughs> that's a true story. So, anyway, that's one. But that and sounds that's... like a great interaction. How could you find yeah. that annoying? Yeah, no, it wasn't really annoying, but it just kind of fit into what you were talking about. So then the second one is, I was for 18 years uh, a partner in the apparel manufacturing business known as the Garment Center. And uh, I was also relatively young. I was in my 20s, uh, and uh, I befriended a fellow who we would call in those days connected. Uh, Jewish guy, I'm Jewish, you know, uh, but 100% sure because I met people through him, but I stayed arm's length. 
so to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was our button supplier. Uh, we could call him our button man. <laughs> so people, he used to drop names all the time, and people would say he's full of crap. Uh, so I went over to him, and I said, uh, he was known as Rocky, and I, I said, uh, you know, people say, you know, this guy, you always drop this name, that name. He says, what are you doing at 12 o'clock on Saturday? I said, nothing. He says, why don't you meet me at P.J. Clark's? And we'll have lunch. I go, okay. And in walks this Rocky, and in walks Rocky Graziano. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the three of us sat down and uh, talked. Uh, and I was like uh, meeting Babe Ruth, you know, and he was squeezing my cheek, and he was saying, yeah, nice kid, you know, and he was telling me about this up-and-coming lefty named Cooney. Uh, anyway, uh Another one was we were we went to we wait. Is that the whole the, story? That's the whole story. Right, but, but again, it's the same thing. It's not really an annoying story. I mean, it's not like Graziano became obsessive no. and started calling you all the time and was bothering you. No, I guess not. Okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I thought it was entertaining. That's okay. No, it is entertaining. I'm glad I heard it. But I, I think it is a lot different from the Mel Brooks story. Or even you know the the Curtis Lewa encounter or the Joe Franklin encounter or the you know these these stories where you grow up uh, or spend a lot of time looking up to someone and then when you get to know them they're just as annoying as everybody else just like Cary Grant and Mel Brooks so I think it's a little bit different all right tell you what's not annoying money uh, we're gonna try and give you a thousand dollars can you answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds if you can. We're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. All you have to do is be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller right now, we're going to give you $1,000 or an opportunity to win $1,000 by answering 10 questions in 60 seconds. Go ahead and call now. 800-848-9222. The $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.
This is uh, Cheryl Crow actually singing my favorite mistake. Uh, there's a new a documentary out about Cheryl Crow that has gotten a great deal of attention. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know that it's going to be on my list, but uh, I'm curious if you've seen it, if it's worth seeing. I have heard a lot of good things about that Derek Jeter documentary. So far, actually, I've heard a lot of things about it. I've read about it. It sounds interesting. And then the two, the two, it's like a six or seven part documentary, which I'm not terribly enthusiastic about doing, but I like baseball and I'm certainly interested in Derek Jeter. And so far, the two people that I've talked to about it over the last couple of days, my friend Brian Silverstein and my friend Bill Smith, they'll start describing an anecdote from the documentary and I'll say, oh, well, is it worth seeing? And both of them hesitate. And they, they say, oh. And I said, all right, well, okay. And that's not really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, uh, uh, if I ask you, is something worth seeing? Yes. That's what I'm looking for. Right? Like, absolutely. Not, uh, you know. And so, so far, what I've been able to divine by their answers is that because I'm not a Yankee fan, that maybe for me it would not be worth seeing. So curious if uh, you're not a Yankee fan, and especially if you're not a baseball fan, if it is worth seeing. Like You, you know what documentary, the OJ documentary from a few years ago? That is tremendous. That was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. I think it was seven or eight parts. That could have been 30 parts. That was great. And it doesn't matter if you're not a football fan or uh, whatever, if you don't have no interest in the Naked Gun films. That was a great documentary. You ask me if that's worth seeing? Yes. Answer. So far, I haven't gotten that kind of enthusiasm with the Derek Jeter documentary. All right. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. John is in Staten Island, our contestant this morning. Hello, John. How are you, Frank? I'm great, John. John, what part of Staten Island do you live in? You know where I live. I'm in Annadale, right by you, not far from you. Oh, boy. You're, you're not. You, are you watching me right now, John? No, I'm not. Okay, all right. All right, uh, so, John. You're, you're, you're an old man trapped in a young man's body. I'm aging rapidly, though. I'm becoming less young by the minute. Um, you know the rules of this game, right, John? Yes, I do. Okay, let's get started. If you're ready, name a state that begins with the letter A. Alabama. Which country was the first to land on the moon? United States of America. What is a baby cow called? Cow. How many presidents have we had with the last name Roosevelt? Two. What TV show featured David Hasselhoff and Pamela Anderson as lifeguards? Baywatch. Who wrote A Christmas Carol? Oh, that's a tough one. Um... I'm stuck on that one. This is Carol. Pass. All right. Well, we don't really have a pass option. How about you make a guess? 
Take a guess. An Englishman. He was an Englishman. Uh, an Englishman. First name Charles. Uh, yeah. Oh, Charles. Uh... All right. We're out of time. It was Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. Yes. All right. Well, you got up to question six, which is better than uh, a lot of people have been doing uh, lately. So you didn't win the thousand, but I'm going to put you on hold. You're going to talk to Avery. And uh, he'll give you an education about uh, Charles Dickens. And uh, we, in exchange, will also give you a complimentary uh, WABC or the other side of midnight piece of memorabilia. Maybe a shirt, maybe a hat. So hang on, John. Give Avery your information. By the way, um, if you're interested, speaking of films, if you're interested in learning about a little bit about Charles Dickens, a film that I cannot recommend enough is called The Man Who Invented Christmas. And it's it's got a great cast, and it's about Charles Dickens and the process of him writing A Christmas Carol. Now, I have no idea how historically accurate it is. I seem to remember, it's been a couple of years since I saw it, but I seem to remember it being pretty accurate from what I know. I don't pretend to be an expert in Charles Dickens, but I think it was pretty accurate. And with Christopher Plummer passing away a couple of years ago, it's great to see Christopher Plummer in this film. He's great as uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. Jonathan Price is in it. It's a wonderful film. So uh, see the film, and you will not forget the name of Charles Dickens. So uh, check it out. I do recommend that film very much. All right, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far, that's one 800 848 If you are celebrating a birthday today, you are celebrating with um, actress Julie Newmar, Catwoman, one of the many Catwomen from the original series. She is 89 years old today. And Leslie Ann Warren is 76 years old today. She is a tremendous performer, was great in the film uh, Victor Victoria, which is a personal favorite of uh, of my mom, uh, that might be her favorite film. And um, the uh, former senator from Illinois, Carol Mosley Braun, is 76 today, and or 75 today, excuse me. And uh, today is also uh, Madonna's birthday. I had hoped to play a couple of Madonna tunes today, but it, it uh, just wasn't in the cards. We weren't able to get... Uh, get any of the uh, any of the rights in time but who knows maybe next time and uh, it's also the birthday of Jordana Zismore who is the daughter of the famous subway dermatologist Dr. Zismore you remember Dr. Zismore used to have those ads on the subways and then you'd have those uh, commercials during uh, I remember watching wrestling and then all of a sudden the Dr. Zismore commercials would come on you say you too can have beautiful clear skin well, today, it's his daughter Jordana's birthday. So happy birthday to her. All right. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in about 10 minutes where you get an opportunity to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. Speaking of parties and the like, I have never really been a bachelor party guy. I'm not a bachelor party guy. I didn't even want to have a bachelor party for myself. I, I don't really like going to bachelor parties. But over the years, I I used to just not go to them. I I don't like them. Uh, it's a lot. I, it's just it's a lot. I don't, it's not my thing. So I used to not go to them, and then I noticed a trend happening for close friends and family members. 
I had noticed that when I was skipping their bachelor party that there was a little bit of a, a resentment. There was a lingering resentment not only from the person whose bachelor party it was, but from the other groomsmen in a given wedding who were all going to this bachelor party, making the sacrifice of their time, making the sacrifice of their money, and uh, then I would not go. And I got the sense that people were, were a little annoyed with it. And, you know, there'd always be one or two good stories from all these bachelor parties that I was skipping that I always felt that I was kind of missing out on them. So recently I decided I would start going to the bachelor parties again. So I went to when my friend Arthur Idala got married. I went to his bachelor party when uh, my brother Nick got married. I obviously went to his bachelor party. So I, now I go to them. That's my thing now. I guess when you're when you're married, there's more of a desire to go to bachelor parties, right? I mean, when you're single, every day of your life is a bachelor party. What do you need to go to a bachelor party for? So <laughs> I got this email. I'm not going to mention any names here, but uh, or not any real names, but a friend of mine's getting married next year. I think uh, summer of next year, 2023. And I, I get this email, presumably sent to me and uh, let's see, how many other people here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven other fellows. I'm actually officiating this wedding and I'm looking forward to being at the wedding and officiating the wedding. And this email's from a, a young man who I think I've met. And he writes, hi, all. Some of you I know, but for those I don't, I'm one of blank, let's call him Fred. I'm one of Fred's longtime friends he grew up with in New Jersey. Okay. Plenty of time to plan, but wanted to get early signal on what may be possible for the all-important bachelor party. Now, I'm reading this email, and I'm already just... I'm out. I mean, I'm just, I'm not out of the bachelor party. I'm out of the email because this is the kind of email that I send as a joke. And I'm in on the joke. And yet I feel like it's being sent to me seriously. I'm just thinking, okay, this is going to be, this is way too much. People are putting way too much time and effort and thought into this. But okay, that's, I guess that's what people do. Catching up with Fred. He's interested in spending a weekend in Atlanta and getting some Braves games in at next season's start. And then he says, April, May, 2023. Okay, that's all good. It's fine. Then this blew my mind. Blew my mind, this next line. When able, please fill out this form to confirm interest, I said, you have got to be kidding me. I read that twice. And then, sure enough, there's a form to confirm your interest in attending the bachelor party. And it's a whole detailed Google Doc. It says, Fred Fielding, it's not his real name, Fred Fielding Bachelor Weekend. First question, what is your name? You really need my name on this form? Okay. Second question, what is your email? And I'm thinking, you emailed me this form. Obviously, you have my email. Okay. I guess you need it for your records. Three, where is your home base slash 
will be traveling from. Four, would you be able to spend a weekend in Atlanta in April or May of 2023? Now, as I get to that question, I'm thinking, isn't that kind of the only question that matters? Right? I mean, shouldn't the whole thing be, hey, this is what Fred wants to do. We're having a bachelor party in Atlanta, April or May of 2023. Do you want to go? Are you able to go? That's That should be the whole form. Yet, I'm sitting there, and I had a particularly pick, uh, busy day yesterday. So this this is this really not what I was eager to be doing. But I, of course I did it because... One, I'm a sucker, and two, because it helps me procrastinate doing everything else I have to do in any given day. And if there's one thing that I'm looking to do every day, it's procrastinate. I am a professional procrastinator. So then, (laughs) this was amazing to me. How would you rank options? And then it lists first choice, second choice, third choice. And it says, underneath how would you rank options... Fred's first choice is Atlanta. Again, I don't understand why we're still having a debate about other things. Then it says you have there's three little ovals you have to fill in. Do you want first choice weekend in Atlanta for Braves? Do you want first choice to be weekend in New York City for Yankees or Mets? Or three other something else? And so you have to oh. You have to oval in what your first choice is, what your second choice is, and what your third choice is. Now, of course, my first choice is to stay in New York, but I'm not going to put that because then I'm the jerk going against the expressly stated wishes of the bachelor here. And uh, although now I heard from Rudy Giuliani yesterday, both on his own show and on the Cats at Night show, that uh, Atlanta is a very corrupt city. So I don't want to be spending a bachelor party weekend at a corrupt city. I want to go to an incorruptible city, like Atlantic City. So um, that's what I put for my other something else. But, of course, I picked first choice. I'll go along with what the bachelors want to do. Second choice, New York City. And then third was other something else. And then right beneath that, it says, if other slash something else preferred, what is it? So I wrote in Atlantic City. And then uh, (laughs) – Which weekends in April and May 2023 would work for you for either Atlanta or New York City? And I'm thinking, does anybody know what they're doing in April or May of 2023? I have no idea. And then um, lastly, any problem with staying in Airbnb or prefer hotel? Uh, And then there's two options to click. Airbnb is good or prefer hotel. So... Ladies and gentlemen, I have now seen everything. Now that we are filling out forms to attend a bachelor party, I have seen everything. I may go back to my old philosophy of either either not attending bachelor parties or not filling out forms. Because, I mean, the whole thing, I think, should have been, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you want to go? Boom. No need to fill out a form. But, of course, I did it. 15 seconds of fame. Uh, straight ahead, 800-848-9222. We are, we decided to postpone the mail until tomorrow because we're tracking down the snail mail. If you want to send me some snail mail, by the way, you can do so at uh, P.O. Box 1777. 
And uh, that is uh, New York, New York, uh, New York, New York, uh, 10163. Just make sure you send it to my attention, Frank Morano. P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Attention, Frank Morano, or the other side of midnight. I'll get it either way. 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Feathers, uh, a hit song that everybody is talking about, available on iTunes, and uh, really just uh, a, a great gem. And it seems like Stevie G, of Stevie G and Little, Little Feathers, is a, a great guy. All right, time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds, 1-800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Joe in Orange County. Frank, you're worried about going to Atlanta? You live in the most corrupt state on the planet. Come on. Rick in Tom's River. Good morning. Whatever happened to the old-fashioned bachelor parties where you went to strip joints and had a great time? Think about it. Neil on Staten Island. Instead of worried if Trump has nuclear documents... Shouldn't we be more worried that an idiot like Biden has the nuclear codes? Joe and Ron (laughs) Konkama. Great show, Frank. Big shout out to Frankie and Glendale and Nick in Farmingdale. November's right around the corner. Vote for Lee Zeldin. He's our only chance out of this mess. Mike in Lake George. Good morrow, Frank. You know, yesterday I was talking about baseball, New York, the greatest game. The toughest thing to do is hit a round ball with a round bat. I was a drummer back in the day, and they're funkified. Here's a rim shot. Pow. Phil in Somerville. Frank, I want to thank you for playing Crawfish uh, from Elvis's King Creole. He's the king, and he's been gone 45 years today, and I love him. And I love you for playing that. Cheech and Howard Beach. And a shout out there to the La Familia Cadillac Club. 
And uh, Giuseppe from uh, Ronconcovo. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? You know, today is the 45th anniversary of Elvis's passing. I didn't realize that when I uh, suggested that we play that. Did you realize that, Matt? See, synchronicity. I'm a big believer in that. Larry in Brooklyn. Roger Stone was pardoned, and hence he's not a felon. Tell that to Sal. And Roger Stone may also have a defamation suit against the NYPD for designating him as such. John in Manhattan. I'm glad we got that in. Hey, that slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow with Dr. Sky and Malachi McCourt, maybe even Noel Ashman and Marlena Schiavo, and the mail. Don't miss it. Frank Moreno, good day.